We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to another edition of Final Review. My name is Andrew Claudio and on today's show, with great power comes great responsibility. And with the latest Spider-Man film hitting theaters this weekend, the last rumored Spider-Man film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one that is rumored also to pay tribute to the Spider-Man legacy, We felt it was our responsibility to do a final review of 2002's original Spider-Man. This stars Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker slash Spidey. It has Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane, James Franco as Harry Osborn, Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn, and it is directed by Sam Raimi. This film qualifies for our show by hitting 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It has two Academy Award nominations to its name for Best Sound and Best Visual Effects, which we will talk about in just a second. And at the box office, it set a record for uh, the at the time, the most successful comic book movie of all time and the first to reach $100 million in its opening weekend, an $821 million purse. Joining me as always to break it all down, I'm hoping he's my Harry Osborne and not my Norman Osborne, or maybe perhaps he's my Mary Jane, <laughs> Mr. Bernard Ozrowski. Oz, how are you today, sir? I- I'm good. Can I be your, your Ned Leeds? Isn't that the... The Jacob Batalon character in the oh, Tom that's Howard the new ones. one. I was wondering. Yeah. I was like, wait, we're talking about 2002. Like, who's Ned? I forgot who Ned was for a second. Um, so it's interesting. This is a movie I love, and this is a movie that blew my mind in 2002. It's one of the first midnight showings that I went to. It's one of the first DVDs that I owned after I bought my first DVD player as as a teenager. It's one of the movies that felt like an event for the first time that wasn't like a cartoon or like something I I went to a field trip on. It felt like remembering what it was like to be 14 and going to see this movie that my mind was blown, that the superhero world that we now are so 
in tune with and so used to this for me i feel like started it off and it was so fascinating this spider-man week that i've had and seeing how this character and the interpretations of it have evolved i'm curious how this show is gonna go because i've said all the things about this movie up front that i like it that i, I love it i I will defend being 14 and loving it. And yet, after going through the exercise of giving it a final review, and one of the things we talked about when coming up with the show was, you know, movies are going to have to stand the test of time. And I'm not sure how much of a standing against that test this movie does, but I'm, I'm excited to, to see just uh, just how much we talk about this movie or whether this is a case of just because you're first doesn't mean you're the greatest. Uh, but let's do it. Let's get into it. Uh, the question I always ask you uh, is, what do you remember about the first time you saw the original Spider-Man in 2002? So Spider-Man was, uh, for me, the most important character, fictional character in in my upbringing. It was the comic book that I most loved. It was the animated series that I most loved, even though I, I can now recognize that the Batman one is is better and the X-Men one is probably better too. But but the Spider-Man one was really what what resonated for me. This was a, a very, very important movie for me. I, I definitely I went to boarding school for high school and I definitely snuck out for this. And I think Attack of the Clones was like three weeks later. And they were uh, the first times I snuck out to see midnight movies like a fucking nerd. Uh, <laughs> and I loved it. I, I really did. It really, it, it felt like it, it hit the vibe for me. It felt like it was the first of the comic book movies that really, truly felt like a comic book because X-Men for, you know, we, we talked about it a little on the Logan episode, but X-Men is a little embarrassed of its comic book origins. It, it pisses on the costumes. It, it makes a few little snarky asides like that. Blade, very little about Blade resembles a, a comic book, I think, purposefully. So, you know, we're, we're looking at the first sort of Marvel movie that actually feels like what it would be like to read a comic book. And I think it works quite well in that regard but as you said this this one has not aged well <laughs> for me uh it's it's still good i still enjoyed watching it my my kid was super into it and really it really enjoyed it i think that's because some of the sort of slapsticky elements like bone saw and things like that really work on a three-year-old in a, in a way they just didn't work on me and i know there's like a weird internet nostalgia thing for these raimi toby mcguire movies but it it just it just didn't it just didn't vibe for me it's a little too it's a little too goofy and it's not that i need all my marvel movies to be like you know mature storytelling i'd i'd rather drink bleach than watch the snyder cut again it's just <laughs> I, I i it just didn't it didn't connect at all the way it did 20 years ago and honestly i think that's the purpose of the show it's to go back and and investigate if our nostalgia is accurately reflecting what these movies look like today it reminded me a lot of, oh, I don't know if it was the first time or one of the times I saw Space Jam as an adult. And it's like, wait a minute, Michael Jordan's a bad actor. I was not privy to this when I first saw this as a kid. And it inspired me to start watching basketball. I, what is happening here? Uh, Michael Jordan is Olivier compared to LeBron. Well, that's a whole different story. Yes. In basketball and acting. Um, that's an entirely different podcast. Um, <laughs> I was just flat out disappointed by how bad the visual effects looked going back to this. And look, it's 
it's a curve of on 2002 that you have to grade because this movie again nominated for best visual effects and from the opening credits with this web being spun that if as somebody today who does this for a living if i saw this and was working on a visual effects like this i would say like this looks poorly done i need you to go back and redo this and this was nominated for a prestigious award the biggest compliment i can give to this movie going back is i was reminded of the ubiquity of spider-man back when i was 14 everybody saw this movie and i feel like the seeds were planted for what would come with the mcu that everybody seemed to have seen this one specific movie because you had to be part of the conversation you had to know what with great power comes great responsibility was referring to and where it comes from um you know i i I feel like this started that in the modern era at least is that a fair thing to say i i don't know that it's necessarily the one that i I think maybe the modern era this is the one that that should probably get credit i don't think it's fair to short shrift particularly superman and batman as early good point comic book movies go and those those especially batman was a legitimate awards contender and superman was a massive hit it it definitely sets forth the archetype that the the post whedon mcu leans into of trying to balance the the quippy character stuff with the sort of more you know emotional though not all that serious beats um i i really i just think that feige and mostly mcu just does this mixture of melodrama and comedy better than this movie does. And I I think that this one probably lands best for me in some of the relationship notes. There's other stuff that I'll quibble on. I think the the Dunst McGuire chemistry is really good here. I think it's the most I think it's the most engaged she is in the movies. I mean she's like actively checking her watch in Spider-Man 3 during every scene, figure out when she's done for the day. Uh here she's she's really quite good. And I, I think their their kind of long talky melodramatic scenes are are what ages best here. Um it really feeling the 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 overwhelming matrix influence on this in the action scenes is kind of tiring um it just feels it it feels derivative in the way of other action things that were going on especially you know looking at this era more broadly it feels derivative in the way that bad bond movies can feel derivative of what else is happening in in the industry and and all that just kind of bummed me out a little bit that it's just i don't know the, the the magic that was that was there for me when i was what 17 years old when this came out it's just it's not it's not the same in my mid thirties. And that just kind of, it just kind of makes me sad. Yeah. Um, what is it about Spider-Man? Like I, you mentioned Batman and Superman. Yeah. Those probably are the, the bigger examples that everybody's been drawing off of, but man, there's just something about this, this one character that people relate to more than others. What do you think that might be? Well, I think this is a, there are lots of ways that we can say, here's why DC is different than Marvel and everything else. But I, I think DC has always dealt in more archetypical godlike figures. And the appeal of Marvel as it as it came to the forefront in the 60s was the characters were more human. They they failed more. They had more real world concerns. I mean, Bat, Batman's a, a billionaire and has some like emo issues. Superman is a is a god. He's he's Jesus with superpowers. Uh 
Spider-Man can't pay his fucking rent. Yeah. I can't get the girl. Like everything is always his sort of his superpower is like unluckiness beyond all the all the spider bullshit. And I, I think that that's appealing and humanizing in a way that the entirety of the MCU sort of leans into. I think one of the reasons people rejected Eternals is because Eternals is is they're not really all that flawed characters. They're kind of like God figures with, you know, vague relationship dramas. And I like Eternals, but I think the, the, the flawed nature, the outsider nature of this narrative, of the X-Men narrative, of so many of the MCU narratives is what is, is what makes them so appealing to the masses. I think that, that Tobey Maguire is, is largely, despite really looking like he's 30. It's not quite an Evan Hansen level issue, but it's it's not good. Um, and like uh, Joe Manganiello is, uh, he looks like he's 40 and I obviously mm, he hasn't started yeah. juicing yet, but he looks, uh, no no college kid looks like that, let alone high schooler. I think that Toby is, is a really, really good Peter Parker. I, I don't necessarily think he's a really good Spider-Man, but I think he's really good at this sort of sad, put upon difficulty until they, you know, blow everything up in Spider-Man 3 and make it bad and ruin the origin story and everything else. But uh, I, I really, I, I think he he's quite good. He's quite good at the pining. He's quite good at the sort of looking like a sad, beaten puppy. Um, they've leaned into, you know, he's perhaps not my favorite all-time actor, and they've leaned into sort of where his skill set works quite effectively here. Yeah, I had never seen Tobey Maguire in anything. And this is probably a theme with this movie, is that I'd never seen Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, uh, Willem Dafoe, James Franco, any of these actors uh, before Spider-Man. So this was my introduction. So then when I go see James Franco and a lot of other things, I'm saying, oh, Harry Osborn in this. And then obviously Toby in other things, that's Spidey doing this. Like even Willem Dafoe, who's gone on to have this very interesting career that's still norman osborne for me and like kirsten dunn's like has bring it on but she was the original mj she was the like original love interest for peter parker so i wonder if that has anything to do with why i have such a nostalgia for this movie and look i agree with you about the fact that all these people look 30 and and it's nowhere near as bad as going from inventing Facebook to being 16 in Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man for Andrew Garfield. Um, but I agree with you in that I like, I like Peter Parker in this movie because of his intelligence being shown off. He clearly seems like the nerdy kid, but his intelligence is able to be highlighted in a way that he deserves this responsibility, which I always appreciated. Um, how much how much does the third movie being bad affect the legacy of this first one? Because we have a, a solid first movie, a all-time great second movie, and then the third one's so bad that it almost like infects the rest of the original trilogy to where we could be looking at one of the better trilogies. And I, I just wonder if that has anything to do with why we look back on this less fondly as we do other superhero interpretations. I, I really, I think you're on to something there. It, it's legacy matters. And I think that the legacies of all these series are impacted by how they evolve and grow. So Iron Man gets to go out on top because his last two movies are the two of the, what, three or four biggest movies ever made, universally adored. Uh, and I'm talking about the Avengers movies, of course, right, where he's right. really the lead, not 
Iron Man 2 and 3. It's a little tough when you you go out on a dog of a movie that is, everyone's been pretty open, was a horrible production process. Raimi was unhappy the entire time. The studio forced him to do Venom, a character he detested and treated as though he detested. Um, and there are all these tales of Spider-Man 4, if they were going to recast Kirsten Dunst, if she would come back, if, how they were going to cast the uh, Vulture, which was the conceived of villain. There's just so much about it. And then it's followed up by this other series that just, I kind of like the Amazing Spider-Man movies, or at least the first one. And uh, it just, they, they just feel so irrelevant. It's just, it's such a strange legacy these things have left behind. And maybe, maybe No Way Home is going to magically uh, repair the end, the bad endings of both this series and and the Garfield series. But I, I, I do think it it's telling that the last movie is so soft and kind of hurts the legacy of this trilogy. How would it? Oh, because Defoe and Jamie Foxx are in and Melina are in. No, way, that's right. And that's it. And definitely not because Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are in it. They're not. They've said publicly. I know. But listen, they're, they're definitely not. I dare you to slander them and don't <laughs> and print its libel. So make sure you don't write it that they are actually liars and misleading the people with what they're saying, Oz. Harry! Won't you be needing this? Thanks, Tim. Uh, Peter, may I introduce my father, Norman Osborne? Heard so much about you. Great honor to meet you, sir. Harry tells me you're quite the science whiz. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. I read all your research on nanotechnology. Really brilliant. And you understood it? Yes, I, I wrote a paper on it. Impressive. Your parents must be very proud of I live with my aunt and uncle. They are proud. Hey, you two! Let's move! Nice to meet you. Hope to see you again. Yeah. Some category omissions for today. Cliff Robertson, who plays Uncle Ben, has the most iconic line of the movie. We'll be not be doing a top five for him. Uh, Rosemary Harris as Aunt May. So I mentioned the unintentional comedy. Um, the Finish it! Yes, the loud cackle that I let out when she's saying the Lord's Prayer and then the Green Goblin bursts into her bedroom via glider and she's yelling, deliver us! And he yells, finish it! From Eve! (laughs) Oh man, there's so many funny moments in this movie. I I was impressed by how it worked. Speaking of funny, uh, we will not be doing a top five for Nickelback. Um, the Chad, the Chad Kroger and Josie Scott song "Hero" is a constant that I go back to. One of the few things where Chad Kroger is singing on that I go back to. Uh, J.K. Simmons, which I got to be honest, J. Jonah Jameson would rank higher for me. It's tough for me to compare this small role that he has in Spider Man to like Whiplash or Oz. You know, but I I quite enjoy him as J. Jonah Jameson so much so that I'm excited to see if he plays any type of role in No Way Home. Um, Elizabeth Banks. There is a long list of like, oh, they're in this movie. Octavia Spencer. Octavia, yeah, I was thinking Octavia Spencer. Oh my gosh, blew my mind. The Moon Dance Diner from Tick Tick Boom, which I, <laughs> I, okay, I swear to God, I thought the Moon Dance Diner was a thing that Jonathan Larson made up for Tick Tick Boom, not realizing it was a real diner that closed in 2012. And even more frustrating, when I found out it was like a real thing, I was like, oh great, let's go this weekend. And fa- the devastation I had that I can't go to where Jonathan Larson used to work. Um, Tick, Tick, Boom. Very great movie. Watch it. It's on Netflix. Um, We're not going to be doing Macy Gray. We're not going to be doing um, Bruce Campbell of Evil Dead fame, uh, the original introduction to Sam Raimi. 
And then an interesting one that I did want to spend a minute on, Stanley cameos. So this started that. I guess it did. I guess Is it he, did. Uh, he's not in any of the X-Men. I think you're right. I think it did. Yeah. So of the Stanley cameos, which one has stood out to you? This is on the spot. I'm throwing this at you, but like what one pops out to you immediately? I have an easy answer to this. Uh, it's Spider-Verse because it's the one that made me cry. Now, obviously, there's a there's a, a, a calendar reality to that one that it's the first one after he died. It came out close in time to his death. I don't know. I, I'm not actually sure about that because I saw that movie early and I don't remember exactly how the timeline lines up. It came up, but out I know, after. It came out after. That's when I saw it too. Yeah. I know for me, it was very close and it was just sort of like a perfect encapsulation of his like self-aware huckster identity. Uh, I... I that that's the one I think that that vibes best for me. There's a a small one in Ralph breaks the internet two or that Wreck It Ralph oh, two. Yeah, Ralph yeah. breaks the internet. The stinger. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a a nod to him there that that also tugs at the heartstrings. Um. Yeah. I, I noticed it here and I thought back to oh wow Stanley cameos interesting. He is by the way in X Men. He is in X Men. He's a hot dog vendor when the uh, jelly version of Senator Kelly swims out of the ocean he's is a, he really he's a hot now? dog vendor there okay and then i need to go i need to go check that i need to go rewatch the first x-men the categories for today sam raimi directed films toby mcguire performances willem dafoe performances kirsten dunce performances James Franco performances. Uh, Danny Elfman scores a repeat category for superhero films. 2002, the 2000s, and the Spider-Man cinematic universe. Believe it or not, there are 10 movies in this universe, and we'll be ranking all 10. We start, as always, with our director. Is Spider-Man a top five Sam Raimi directed film? You a fan of Evil Dead? Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't hate Evil Dead or really, okay. the, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't think anyone thinks when they say Evil Dead, they really mean Army of Darkness and Evil Dead yeah. 2 uh, and sort of all the other shit, the star show and things like that. And the kind of Bruce Campbell of it all. Uh, not my favorite thing. I, I get why it appeals to people. I get the humor. Maybe if I had, I don't know connected with it at a different point in life or you know was a little more stoned when i watched it or something like that it would it would click better for me but it's just not it, it's it's fine i under I, I get it it's just not for me how about you do you do you, do you like these things well i think that i mentioned this during the halloween pod that the gratuitous gore is just not a thing that works for me um it's just it, sometimes it seems unnecessary it's it's going for sensationalism rather than creating a tone and while I appreciate these curious white people getting lost in the woods. I just don't see the appeal personally. And why I do appreciate more than anything else that all three of these movies are less than 90 minutes. I did all three Sunday night. I did a little mini Evil Dead marathon after the Knicks played the Bucks and before we recorded the pod. And I, I'm telling you, that's the only good thing I could say. I appreciate what people see in them. Not my cup of tea. And Sam Raimi being selected for this trilogy is also pretty 
interesting when you read the laundry list of names of directors that were considered to do this. It's tri- crazy. Yeah. So you saw it too. Um, so I, where do you want to start? Did you see the James Cameron thing that came out lately? Oh, the, I didn't the see interview? the James Cameron thing. He, he gave a, an interview somewhere and talked about how his Spider-Man movie would have would have changed cinema even you know in his usual modest way, like would have changed cinema even more than Avatar. But he's actually the genesis of some of the tweaks in this, like the the spider shooters from the wrists instead of designing his own thing that that's a james cameron creation that he claims he came up with with stan lee's assistance and and consent really to it i would have really liked to see a james cameron spider-man movie it would give zero fucks about fidelity to spider-man but i think it would have been pretty cool i think of the names listed his was the most yeah i'm in like david fincher was apparently attached to this and i would have loved to see like a dark nihilistic spider-man that is like, fuck Uncle Ben, you know? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, he died, so what? I thought you'd have been all over the, the Tony Scott version of this. Well, there's a Tony Scott version. Of, that's a, that's on the list. The Roland Emmerich version of Spider-Man I'm in for, where aliens come out the sky and blow up the White House, and it's basically just Independence Day. Um, the M. Night Shyamalan being attached to this. So what's the twist ending? <laughs> That, that's I, I guess that's what a that's what a stinger is now, right? That's when oh. Venom, that's when Venom shows up, or I don't okay. Know. So he would have teased the next movie, not like or Goblin. It would, it Goblin takes a, off the mask, and it's Uncle Ben. It would be a twist. Like I, I won't say specifically what happens, but like the Shang Chi stinger would be yes. a good example of of the sort of thing that he would tack on the end. Yeah, Chris Columbus attaches. That's the guy that did Home Alone, right? That's the guy who did Harry Potter. Harry Potter. That's the other. Okay, so he actually does have some experience with the franchise. Ang Lee then went on to do The Hulk. Um, I appreciate some of his more serious stuff than... I mean, there's really one main thing that I appreciate from him. But regardless, uh, the one that I actually was the most on board with was Michael Bay. I'm all aboard a Michael... Like, just blow everything up. Your web shooter just blows things up. Fine. I'm all aboard. (laughs) Spider-Man is literally slinging through New York City as it's blowing up. I I would love to give Michael Bay a superhero movie. I think that'd be great. It would it would be like it would be like upmarket Zack Snyder. As one could argue, Bad Boys and Bad Boys Two are superheroes, especially movies. Bad Boys Two. Yeah, definitely, actually. So I say all of this, and now that we know the directors that we could have had, are you okay that we landed on a Sam Raimi directed Spider-Man film? Uh, yeah. I mean, I like this movie. I th- I think it turned out pretty well, and I I think it also set out that these things can embrace the the comic bookness of it all uh quite a bit more than they had been otherwise so i i i, I think he's fine i think of the directors we listed there's really only two or three that make me curious what their version of spider-man would look like there are two very good spider-man movies one that stands the test of time is one of the greatest ever uh that i'm very okay with the fact that we ended up getting the director we got for for this Maybe not this trilogy, but this project. Um, Oz, your top five Sam Raimi directed films. You know, one one thought before I dive into it. It's crazy that the guy who made this movie is now going to loop back around and make an MCU movie that, you know, room if if you believe any of the rumors, is going to be one of the most like part of the thread and holding everything together and balancing like seven different stories, movies that they're doing in this entire phase. It's kind of crazy to see him like step away from his auteur tendencies and make himself a cog in the machine. Obviously, Feige's getting better at dealing with these more auteur-ish presences, but I think that's I think that's kind of fascinating. And I wonder if we'll get a little bit of a situation where some directors who've aged 
poorly, but then sort of associate with you know more powerful producers. I think like like Spike Lee and Black Klansman working with Jordan Peele kind of comes to mind for me of getting like a little bit of pressure makes diamonds thing here. If if Feige will work well with Raimi and if that'll get us a, a pretty cool Doctor Strange movie. I don't know. I, I can't say I like any of Sam Raimi's post Spider-Man output. So optimism. Uh, my number one is pretty easy for me. Uh, it's Spider-Man 2, which is the best of this series. It's one of the best superhero movies ever made. Uh, I think it's it, it, it takes sort of the starter kit of Spider-Man 1 and improves it in nearly every way from villain to action to emotion. Really, the only thing I think Spider-Man is better than Spider-Man Two on is the relationship stuff, uh, but Spider-Man Two is my pretty clear Raimi number one. My number two is the eating disorder ghost story, Drag Me to Hell, which is, I think, uh, for me, his most effective, more horror-tinged film. Uh, I think it's certainly worth watching. It's pretty quick, too. My number three is a, a small crime movie that is one of Sam Raimi's least Sam Raimi-feeling movies starring Billy Bob Thornton. It's called A Simple Plan uh, about folks who find a bag of money and the chaos that that causes. My number four, I, I'm, I'm shifting on the fly here, but my number four is going to be Spider-Man. I, I think there's enough good in Spider-Man that particularly comes from the director's side. I also appreciate that I... I, I have certainly complained about the sameness of MCU movies from time to time. I, I really appreciate that this is very clearly a Sam Raimi movie. A lot of the kitsch, you know, face planting into a wall the first time he swings his, on on a web, uh, you know, like the the smash cut hand, hand signal, smash cut different hand signals. He's trying to figure out how to use the webbing. There's just a lot of stuff that's very, very distinctly Raimi. And to do a distinctly Raimi movie on this scale at this budget and to have it come out effectively for the masses, I think it's pretty cool. So let's put Spider-Man 4. Uh, and my fifth will be my favorite of the ash franchise and that'll be <laughs> that'll be the original the evil dead um because i don't i don't mind a little gore in my horror and uh i think this one is a pretty effective version of the typical cabin in the woods story and i just i don't i get it i it's just not for me on the on the other ones okay um we have three matches in fact our top three are identical spider-man 2 is also my number one and as i said earlier Yes, we could have gotten a James Cameron or a Michael Bay or a, a different version of this that makes me curious as to what the first Spider-Man would be. There's not a single thing I would change about Spider-Man 2. It's one of the, the best superhero movies ever. And the fact that Raimi is responsible for it is is a testament to him. And it's honestly, for me, the best thing he's ever done. Number two is also Drag Me to Hell. The final shot of that movie is a doozy. And... Man, the horror elements of that movie work in ways that like like being afraid to sleep with your mouth open because a fly might fall, like might fly in. That's that's the type of shit that actually works on me. Number three is also our baby of the day, uh, Spider-Man from 2002. And then I'm surprised being the fan of the sport that we love that you didn't mention the movie starring Kevin Costner throwing a baseball for nine innings in the late night. I hate that movie. You hate For the Love of the Game? I hate that movie. Yeah. What do you hate about the For the Love of the Game? Oh my God, it's horribly contrived. It's It it makes Slumdog Millionaire look like a, a feat of naturalistic filmmaking. I, I I cannot stand the contrivances of the story. I don't buy the chemistry with Kelly Preston. Uh, it has good baseball scenes. That's all I got. 
That's why I like that movie a lot. <laughs> That's really good baseball scenes. He throws a perfect game at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, trigger warning. Oh, it's because he throws a perfect game at Yankee Stadium. Okay. I, so the in-depth analysis that film critic Bernardo Zrowski just gave is bullshit. He doesn't <laughs> like that movie because the Yankees got their asses handed to them by Kevin Costner for nine innings and 27 outs. Um, I like the baseball in that movie and the Kelly Preston of it all just like doesn't matter to me. Um, I, I I like movie sports movies that get the sports right. Uh, my number five is either Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2. I will go Evil Dead 2 because of one word, and that's groovy. Um, yeah, not my cup of tea either. Uh, any honorable mentions? I... I- I think that Army of Darkness is at least interesting, if not my if not my favorite thing, would probably be my my honorable mention. Yeah. I also haven't seen Simple Plan, so that's is another there's also this this Cape Lanchette movie, The Gift. Yeah that came out. It's all right. It's all right? Okay. Not not an endorsement from Oz. So have you okay. have you uh is this the weakest filmography that we've done? I think it's it's between this and Reitman. Uh the reason I'll I'll say yes, it's this and Reitman, but I don't even. I think it's disrespectful to Ivan Reitman, though, because of how high the top of the Ivan Reitman ladder is. You know that I think is really interesting about it because Reitman has like two movies that are like really, really good, maybe mm-hmm. three, and I had like Evolution on my Reitman list, and I I think that's a a bad movie. I think it's like far worse than you know Spider Man, which was my fourth place here. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's it's sort of. It's it's kind of interesting to me which who our who our softest director filmography is. Your two Reitman movies are Ghostbusters and Draft Day, right? Vante <sighs> mm, Mac, yes, no matter course. what. <laughs> of course. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dad, are you all right? Harry. What are you doing on the floor? I don't know. Have you been there all night? Uh, last night I was... What? I don't remember. Mr. Osborne? Sir, I asked her waiting for you. I'm sorry, my father's not feeling well, Mr. Mr. Osborne, Dr. Strom is dead. What? They found his body this morning in the lab. He's been murdered, sir. What are you talking about? And the flight suit and the glider? What about it? It's been stolen, sir. Next up is Spider-Man, a top five Tobey Maguire performance. Now, this is where not only the age gap and that you're three years older than me, but also the 
when you got into movies compared to when I started following movies, Gap will show. Because I had no idea who Tobey Maguire was when I saw Spider-Man. I had no clue who this actor was, He had, what other things he had been in. In fact, going through his filmography and anything I've seen him in since, it's like, oh, Spider-Man is in Satterhouse Rules or Pawn Sacrifice or Brothers. And I'm it, he's always going to be Spider-Man to me because this is the first thing. I saw him in as somebody who you've hinted at that you've had a relationship with Tobey Maguire and saw him and other things leading up to this performance. Were you in 2002 excited that we were getting Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker for Spider-Man? I, I actually look, it's not like today where I'm like, Oh my God, I have all these thoughts about who's going to play the bad guy in moon Knight or something like that. Uh, I was, I wasn't that I wasn't this bad back then, but I I remember feeling positive about it because his performance in Pleasantville is a pretty good preview for what you would want in a Peter Parker performance. Obviously, the the I don't even think the age thing dawned on me because it just seemed normal that high schoolers are like thirty in movies, and that's just how it is. Uh, so I felt positive about the casting, despite him not necessarily being my favorite all time actor. Uh, and yeah, you know, I'd seen Cider House Rules. He's he's pretty good in that. So there, you know, there there were things that I had a relationship with leading into his Spider-Man role. Well, speaking of his Spider-Man role, um, you never forget your first. And how I always see him as Spidey in everything he does is probably how like my brother sees Downey or Chris Evans or even I guess Tom Holland going forward, where it's like, oh, if you ever see Cherry, that's Sp- Spider-Man having PTSD and a, and a drug problem. Um, I don't know, maybe because his career never had the same type of appeal as as Holland is. Maybe it'll be a little different. Um, before we get into the list, let's rank the three Spider-Man because he's always going to be the original for me. Uh, but the other two, you know, have have their good things and bad things too. Uh, what order do you put them in? I'm going to I'm going to leave aside the sort of like animated voice actors and stuff like that and and table my extra nerdy shit. Uh, I think that Tobey Maguire is probably the best Peter Parker. I think that Andrew Garfield is actually probably the best Spider-Man. He's a really good Spider-Man, but not a good Peter Parker. And I think that Holland is the best of both worlds. And I think that even though the character has been remixed a ton from the classic origin story. It's very much the ultimate universe version of Spider-Man and even stealing from some Miles Morales stuff. Uh, I actually think Tom Holland is the let's let's subject to revision after we after we all see No Way Home this week. I'm going to I'm going to pick Tom Holland as the greatest Spider-Man. Yeah, I agree. The the Garfield Spidey really nails the the sarcasm of of Spider-Man and, you know, talking shit to bad guys and like sitting in the back of a car and being like, really? Like, you're a car thief and you don't check the back like that. That's a that's a staple in the, in the Spider-Man character, apparently. And I get, think they nailed that. And then at least when I first saw it, I, I appreciated the Peter Parker that we got from Toby. In fact, it's it's kind of watered down the, the Holland Peter a bit because we never get to see the same type of intelligence shown off like Peter writes dissertations and is, is welcomed to labs by the smartest scientific minds in in the original Raimi trilogy and and he's just a kid in the the MCU which I I get it that's the version that they're going for and while he's a 
he's immature and he's inexperienced and that's like the version that we get i i wish they'd show off his intelligence just a little bit more but i i still agree with you that'd probably be the one i'd have ranked the number one of the three i i'm not sure i i totally agree with that i think part of it is that he's a he's a nerd but they show that he's like the in homecoming that he's like the king of the trivia team and stuff like that. They show That's that he goes, he goes home and builds giant fucking scale models of the Death Star and stuff. Like he, he's. I, I think they they do enough. The problem is that the MCU. It's kind of a problem in comic books. Is that there's so many superstar, super smart people that necessarily the Peter Parker character is just kind of like run of the mill super smart. I know there are like rankings, like official canonical rankings that exist, and I can't pretend I know what they are. But I would certainly think the MCU is set up that at least. Bruce Banner, Tony Stark, and Shuri are smarter, clearly, than Peter Parker. So he he should actually only be a, I think, run-of-the-mill smart superhero and not like a, a special intellect smart superhero. I'm simply comparing the two versions of him. That's all. <laughs> I, 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 I should never have sex again after that last line. <laughs> You're good. So my top five Tobey Maguire performances, I almost said Peter Parker performances, um... Similar to the Toy Story episode, I said this at the top that we're going to be honoring the sequel significantly more than we actually honor the movie that we're discussing today. And while I think, while I think he's really good in this movie, in Spider-Man Two, the arc that that character has, it's it's my favorite of the Spider-Man interpretations. I think it's one of my favorite arcs in a superhero movie. Um I don't I don't think I've seen a character wrestle with the responsibility of being a superhero quite like what we see in Spider-Man 2. So I'll go Spider-Man 2 is my number 1, Spider-Man as my number 2. There's a movie called Pawn Sacrifice where Tobey Maguire plays uh, Bobby Fischer, a chess prodigy. Um it turns into like this weird uh political drama with a lot of intrigue and like uh the FBI and the CIA are involved and it's it's this really fun movie about him playing chess against Leah Shriver. It makes chess the most interesting it's ever been in a movie. A Queen's Gambit then came and changed everything there. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, Pawn Sacrifice would be a high recommendation. Um I like him in The Great Gatsby. I also like The Great Gatsby. Oz is giving me a look right now. I guess he is not a fan of The Great Gatsby, um, but uh, it's good to be make friends with Leonardo DiCaprio because then he puts you in your in his movies. Uh, and then the fifth one, I'll go with another sports movie and say Seabiscuit. Um, he plays the jockey in that one. Um, similar to how you have to believe that he's 17 in the Spider-Man movies. You have to believe he's like 4'11 or five feet in the, in Seabiscuit. I think he, he plays it really well and uh, uh, makes you care about the character as well. Um, Oz, your top five Tobey Maguire performances. Uh, so starting at the top for me is a film called Wonder Boys. It's based on a Michael Chabon book. It's directed by Curtis Hansen. Uh, it's basically about a, a university professor and the sort of chaotic life that he lives. Tobey Maguire is one of the one of the students in the film. Uh, it's really a very good, strange performance in what is, I think, a quite good lost 
film. It's also, I, this is a powerhouse cast in hindsight. Michael Douglas is in this, Robert Downey Jr., Francis McDormand, Katie Holmes, Rip Torn. It's full of like really good, really well-known people. Uh, there's perhaps a bit of flirtation between uh, Iron Man and Spider-Man ah. in this movie. So <laughs> you, can you, get a little, you can get a little fan fiction out of this as well. Is this real? The the ca- the letterbox cast is saying Rob McElhaney from Always Sunny is one of the students. I don't remember that, but it wouldn't surprise me. This is one of those movies where everybody who, who was in it went on to bigger things. Like Alan Tudyk is in it from Firefly. There's just a bunch of people. This is one of those like full cast movies. Uh, my number two is going to be Spider-Man 2, uh, which is, I think, his strongest work in the franchise. I think it benefits for his actorly skills as well, that it's moved fully beyond the high school artifice of the first one, which makes the sort of pining and struggling and moping and all that fit more naturally than it does uh, when he's pretending to be 18 years old. My number three is a film I mentioned already, Pleasantville, which is, I think, a a very pleasant movie about uh, color coming to town as people, you know, wake up to the world around them. Uh, My number four is Cider House Rules, which is a very treacly Oscar bait movie, very much of the Harvey Weinstein era of film making, but it's very well acted. There's a very good Charlize Theron performance in it as well. Uh, I think that that is perhaps not a movie I'd strongly recommend, but a good performance from McGuire. And like you, I have Pawn Sacrifice uh, as Ah. fifth on my list. I think it's a very good performance in a very mediocre movie, but Edward Zwick is the director, who's someone I I quite like. Uh, And he always tends to get good performances out of his lead actors. I mean, I, I don't think it would be crazy to say that he got like Tom Cruise's best performance in, in Last Samurai. Like he, he gets good performances out of vaguely limited actors. Uh, yeah. So that's my, that's my Maguire top five and I'll throw Seabiscuit and Spider-Man as my alternates or my honorable mentions. So just to correct you real quick, um, yes, you mentioned Tom Cruise's best performance oh, is Last Samurai and his actual best performance is uh, also a movie Tobey Maguire's in for one scene in the opening credits uh, in Tropic Thunder when he plays Les Grossman, Mr. Tom Cruise uh, Tobey Maguire plays himself as the co-star of a movie with uh, Kirk Lazarus called uh, Satan's Alley um, in one of my favorite cameos in one of the greatest movies of all time. And then they made that movie for real, and it's in theaters now. It's called Benedetta, about lesbian French monks. Oh my gosh, yes, they they did make that movie for real. Um, <laughs> no comment. Or French to, nuns, sorry, yes. French nuns, I was going to say monks. monks. Says, oh, yeah, that's a- there you go. Pete, look, you're changing. I know, I went through exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Peter... These are the years when a man changes into the man he's going to become the rest of his life. Just be careful who you change into. This guy, Flash Thompson, he probably deserved what happened. But just because you can beat him up doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Next up is Spider-Man, a top five Willem Dafoe performance. And damn it, I struggled so much with this top five because I I wanted so bad to include him toward the top, to be honest, because I love him as the Green Goblin. That scene where he's talking to himself in the mirror and one version is Norman and one version is the Goblin is just such great acting and like great 
like this type of movie acting and the scowl that he has compared to the fear and in the opposite perspective it just it differentiates the two versions of him so well while recognizing that he's talking to himself in the mirror for the entire scene and shows off his ability and yet he's got such a really cool filmography where he does so many other different types of characters that I appreciate that it would be impossible to make this my number one. I I did struggle a lot with with where to put this or even to put this on my list. What about you? What's your thoughts on Willem Dafoe? I think Willem Dafoe is kind of a fascinating actor. He's not necessarily my favorite, but he does such weird shit every single year. He's like the ultimate of I'm going to show up and do a paycheck movie and he's happy to go toss himself into these comic book movies and get a paycheck every, you know once every two or three years and then go off and do like a whole bunch of things with like $400,000 budgets in like random Eastern European countries like the lighthouse fucking weird shit. Um, there's a, a just a ton of things in his filmography. I saw a movie with him last year at some festival called Siberia which was just so weird and artsy and I, I, I couldn't even get through it but it's just he, he is willing to go for it as a performer, which I think is pretty cool. Um, the fact that he's willing to go for it so much means that there's a lot of misses for me in his filmography, but he also has some very, very, very strong performances. But he's someone who's either doing kind of... I don't think he's lazy in, in Spider-Man, to be clear, but like his Aquaman performance is not good. Oh, yeah. um, and that's a pretty good example of a lot of his paycheck stuff. I don't really like his mainstream stuff, but he also doesn't really get cast in the sort of award bait, uh, you know, mainstream um, prestige movie. He, he's good in Nightmare Alley, but that's one of the kind of rarer examples because usually he's off doing like a Lars von Trier movie and uh, engaging in all sorts of deviant sexual practices in, in said film. Uh, I, 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 I think he's a genuinely excellent actor, just someone who who is willing to absolutely go for it and when you you go for it the way he does and you don't you know treat your career in such a manicured perfect way you you get some duds but he's just a very interesting performer well said and what's difficult for me more than anything else is that two directors that he's collaborated with a lot are Lars von Trier and Wes Anderson and I have made my thoughts about both of them clear uh, and yeah, I, I was still able to land on a top five pretty easily. The Green Goblin. I'm not sure how much of a comic reader you are, but this is Spider-Man. Is it, is it Goblin or is it Venom that is Spidey's oh, no, main Green villain? It's, it's Green Goblin. Green Goblin. I, okay. I, I, as as our, the bigger nerd in our group, yeah, Green Goblin, Norman Osborn is, is very clearly the most important Peter Parker, Spider-Man villain. Venom's like a modern creation. Norman Osborn has roots all the way back to the beginning of, of the Spider-Man story and also through the broader MCU. He becomes kind of a big picture villain, like a like a Doctor Doom style, like bad guy to everybody figurehead uh, at points, kind of like a Lex Luthor-esque thing he evolves into. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's clearly the most important villain. I think uh, Dr. Octopus is easily more important than Venom also. And also Venom, it's more of like a frenemies thing for most of most of the comic run, just not when just not when you and I were like eight to 10 years old. That's when Venom was mostly a bad guy. Yeah, I'm actually really glad the MCU decided rather than casting their own Green Goblin, they went and got they went and got Willem, and because I really do think he's really good in this. But all right, it's your turn. Your top five Willem Dafoe performances. Uh, my number one is the Florida Project, which is a, a film about one of those very poor, shitty motels uh, where people, you know, pay by cash week to week to stay. And he's the manager 
of the motel. And it's despite what sounds like a misery grind concept, it's actually a, a pretty uplifting, positive film. It's, it's got a very strong, like, look on the bright side element in a lot of ways. And he, he plays a, almost this warm figure who isn't particularly happy with the circumstances all these kids living in this motel are, are living in. Uh, I think it's just excellent work. I think he was Academy Award nominated for it and he definitely he should have won. Uh, it's, it's just, it's really strong naturalistic acting. It's just very, very good stuff. Uh, my number two, uh, let's let's get into the Lars von Trier here is Antichrist, which is damn, it's a weird fucking movie. Uh, I I don't. It's about a couple trying to fix their relationship by going out to a cabin in the woods uh, to tie it back, and it is very strange and very weird. And honestly, if you're going to do a Lars von Trier movie and you're going to try it, you're going to try to expand your horizons. I'd watch Melancholia instead, which I may be mentioning <laughs> uh, in in a different category, but uh, I, I'm not sure I would recommend this if you have not experienced his oeuvre. But uh, it's a very very good performance uh with some horrific genital mutilation uh my number von trier jesus my number three is going to be the last temptation of christ where he plays Jesus. Uh, so I like that I, I like that I can get Antichrist and, and, and Jesus, Jesus next to one another. To girl. It's perfect. Uh, and you see who's before the other. Of course. Uh, this, this is the uh, then controversial, now kind of milquetoast um, Martin Scorsese movie about the, uh, you know, the basically Jesus's time in the desert. Uh, it's a really good performance in what is a very interesting, but sort of strangely lost Scorsese gem. It's also because of three-hour movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. It's not the sort of thing where you're like, let me fire up the DVD player for this one. But he's he's absolutely excellent in it. Uh, my number four is the Oliver Stone film Platoon. So uh, the, the lead in that movie is actually Charlie Sheen. And Charlie Sheen plays a, you know, a soldier heading off to Vietnam. And there's sort of a, a good angel on his shoulder and a bad angel on his shoulder. The Tom Berenger character is very cynical. The Willem Dafoe character is a lot more idealistic about the war and the purpose of the war and everything else. And Defoe is, is great here. And it's actually kind of leaning the opposite direction of his usual heel turn stuff. So I, I think it's it's a strong performance in one of Oliver Stone's best movies. And my number five is going to be a movie that I don't like, actually. I, I think it doesn't work, but I think he's very good. And I think Oscar Isaac is very good in it as well. It's a film called At Eternity's Gate, where he plays Vincent Van Gogh uh, and you know spends most of the movie doing a very big performance as Van Gogh is losing his mind. Uh, but it, I think it's it's an interesting movie more than a good movie, but a very, very good performance at the at the heart of it. So I'm going to assume you're not a fan of Boondock Saints. No, really not. Okay. Really, really strongly not a fan of Boondock Saints. Okay. And now I'm, I guess you're going to, I'm going to assume you're not a fan of The Lighthouse. No. no. Oh, wow. Hark. You don't Hark. like, yeah, you're not a fan of, of Willem Dafoe eating dirt. I am absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is the the overacting shit you don't like. Uh, you know, actually, let me let me say, I think that Willem Dafoe is the more effective of the two. I think he's better than Pattinson in that movie. I think it works better. I I just I that's another movie. I I I'm happy that people like it. Good for them. I I <laughs> I, I respect that this really really clicks for people. I I don't I don't click with Robert Eggers vibe. I don't particularly love The Witch either. I'm excited for the, I think it's called The Northman is his next movie about Vikings, but uh, yeah, he's just not not my favorite thing. This is one of my appreciations for you, where these foofy 
A24 movies that a lot of people told me I didn't get and therefore I was less intelligent for. And then you say, actually, no, I'm not a fan either. And it's like, see, Oz doesn't like it. Therefore, I don't have to like it either. Now, um, now, now let, me, let me say one thing, which is that an A24 movie is my favorite movie this year. And I have like seven bound hardcover books over there uh, behind me of like scripts of A24 movies, which I like and revere. I, but I, I did yeah, not, not mean to. Not all, am, not all of them. I am not putting down A24 as a studio. I'm saying the cult of A24 that can exist sometimes would. Which one is that? That's Alex Garland. Oh, this is the the ex the that's ex machina. Ex machina. Yep. Yeah, ex machina is in- incredible. Yeah. See, also Oscar Isaac. There you go. Um, we have the same number one. The Florida Project is heartbreaking while also being uplifting, which is like a great way that you put it. Um, I love that it's like a version of Florida that isn't like Disneyfied or Miamified. It actually captures the middle, like the non-city destinations or the vacation spots of Florida and shows some of the other sides that you don't really get to see a lot of time in in cinema. So uh, the Florida Project would be my number one. Um, Last Temptation of Christ is my number two. Uh, shout are you, out to are my, you going to get in trouble you, with your dad? Nah, yes, <laughs> exactly. Pastor Claudia, who has never seen this movie. Um, I, that is why I'm doing this. Um, I agree with you that it's, it's, it's a very fine performance while being a, a movie I've only seen once because it's a three-hour movie about Jesus' time in the desert, which I'm pretty sure was only like an hour anyway. So <laughs> um, I don't know. I got to go reread the Bible and fact check myself there. Uh, you nailed it with that Eternity's Gate. It's my number three. Um, these are his two Oscar performances, by the way, that he's been nominated for, The Florida Project and At Eternity's Gate. My number four is going to be The Lighthouse. I don't like this movie at all. I've I've seen it one and a half times. The second time was because some people I trusted said that they liked it and I was like, all right, I'll give it another shot when it came on the streaming. And I tried it, got halfway through, and then my eyelids couldn't stay open. <laughs> um, you want to watch a dude jerking off next to a bucket in a lighthouse in black and white and a, a different aspect ratio, be my guest. I'm with us. I'm glad for you that you enjoy it. Um, he is really good in it, though. And yeah. the... F- the final scene, I, I, I'll I, go as far as really good. I think he, that final scene shows the senility that must have, must be caused by somebody that lives in a lighthouse as long as the, as they do. Um, Like I get the, the overacting I think is intended that they're yeah, yeah. extremity of the situations. Like if you and I got locked in a lighthouse, like think about that for like months, we would go crazy. Like oh, no yeah. phones, no like checking the score, no podcasts. Like, yeah, I would probably kill you and bury you and you would be still alive. Yeah, like all of that. Um, uh, Spider-Man's going to be my number five. Um, I, I need to put Green Goblin on there. I, re-watching it this week solidified that for me. And like I said, I'm not the biggest Von Trier or the Wes Anderson fan, so his other stuff I'm not, I'm not going to be able to apply. But I... Man, Green Goblin was one of like the first villains that I was introduced to. And it, it still, stand, still holds up some of the... Issues I have with the Goblin have nothing to do with his performance, though. Um, it's all like, oh, those those graphics don't look real, and um, had like some of the costume design where like you can see his mouth moving, and it's like 
looks a little cheesy. Uh, having said all of that, I will put Spider-Man as my number five. Uh, any honorable mentions? Uh, yeah, you know, there's a movie. It's I think one of Philip Schumer Hoffman's last movies called A Most Wanted Man, which is a, a pretty good spy thriller that he's in, which I'd recommend. I think his voice work is wonderful and fantastic. Mr. Fox, I know you are a, a, a vowed Wes Anderson hater and I'm a Wes Anderson apathetic, uh, but I think he's good in that. And I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is a is a stronger um, a stronger Wes Anderson entry, uh, and you know I, I'll say I I think he's quite good. It, it didn't it didn't make my list or come particularly close, but I, I think he has one scene in Nightmare Alley, which I think comes out the day this podcast goes up. Uh, that is really really excellent. Um, it's just some really good scenery chewing in a in an amusing way. I think I think Defoe is very good in that movie, but doesn't really have enough screen time or enough to do to to rate for this list. You said mine platoon, although he's in Zack Snyder's Justice League. Fuck off. That came out this year. This year has been the longest year of all time. And it was made longer because we had to sit down for four hours and watch a movie that had to come out again, apparently. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If he was there just three minutes in the cage with all from abroad, a sum of $3,000 would be too. What's your name, kid? The Human Spider. The Human Spider, that's it? That's the best you got? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. The sum of $3,000 will be paid to the terror, the deadly, the amazing Spider-Man. My name's the Human Spider. I don't care. Get out. No, you got my name wrong. Get out. Tell you, moron. Next up is Spider-Man, a top five Kirsten Dunst performance. Uh, this is where I go to you, the comic head here. The choice to go with MJ over Gwen Stacy, was it controversial at the time? I don't think so. I think it's pretty it's pretty normal. I think most folks were used to it from the from the animated show, which is also emphasizing MJ. And I look, Gwen Gwen Stacy died a very, very long time ago, decades ago in comics. And I know that there's always resurrections because no one ever stays dead in comic books. But um yeah, I mean Gwen Stacy died in the sixties, so there's just not there's not like a, a a connection beyond a sort of oh we know who Gwen Stacy is sort of thing. I think for most comic book readers, it's definitely I think MJ is Peter Parker's Peter Parker's great love and and you know really a, perhaps one of the best great loves of all of comic them if I'm thinking it through. But uh, yeah, and I think I think Dunst is good is good casting for the role. Uh, but this is sort of in the before time where you get an up and comer. Uh, they establish themselves in the franchise and then they lose interest and want to go elsewhere. It's not like the sort of new bargain that everyone makes where they're like motivated for their MCU movies because they realize that that's the exposure they need for the other stuff as opposed to just the getting their name there once and moving on. It's interesting that she's so convincing as a redhead in this. And you're right that their relationship works really well here. There will be a theme with this episode that may come up in just a second with my list, but I also buy by their chemistry as well. Um, they're like this can go so wrong in the wrong hands where it's like, why is she interested in the nerdy kid from next door that she keeps catching him peep on her? I agree. Um, 
I don't, I don't, we've done this with, uh, with other people in the past. I don't want to objectify uh, Kirsten Dunst and just limit her performance to the one scene. But um, one of the awards that she won for this performance is the, the best kiss at the MTV movie awards. It's also Kobe, Toby Maguire one. Um, I would just say to a 14 year old boy watching that upside down kiss for the first time, I felt what they were going for. Uh, and it's, I don't even know how to ask this question. Like, is it the most iconic kiss in one of the most iconic kisses in movie history? It's certainly the most in comic book movie history. I, I don't know that it rates an overall movie history, though. I guess if MTV says so. Um, <laughs> I, look, as we're as we're in an era of like, and I say this a lot of like desexualized blockbusters where like hand holding is about as far as it gets, and it's like genuinely surprising that Eternals has a has a chaste sex scene. Um, I I think it's nice that it seems like these two people would actually like to fuck one another. I think that's a I think that's a good thing, and I think it it comes across here. They have, they have excellent excellent chemistry. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm hundred percent all in on that, and I, I love Kirsten Dunst. She's she's she was like a crush of mine in high school, and I think that she's uh, an amazing. I think she's become an amazing actress. Uh, even a lot of her early work is good too. I like, repeat we'll on the lists. Mind blowing when I found out she's a blonde. Because she's a redhead in the first three things I see her in. Um, I believe it's my turn to go first, though. And speaking of bring it on, it's going to come up in just a second. Um, and this is, again, collaborations with Lars von Trier. So I don't, I'm not able to contribute as much as Oz is going to on the prestige side. The first thing that I ended up realizing, so it's, it's, this happens to me a lot where when you're in a movie as a kid, I saw your movie a ton, had no idea it was you. Then I got older, watched the same movie and was like, Oh shit, that's Kirsten Dunst. So I'm going with Jumanji as my number one. <laughs> uh, the greatest game movie. I'm putting all video games, all board games, the, the greatest board game movie of all time. Um, the first Jumanji, by the way, the Robin Williams movie with with Kirsten Dunst. She plays the daughter whose parents died, and then they get uh, Robin Williams' uh, house um, when twenty years after he gets sucked into the board game or went missing. Um, what? What are you? you, you oh, I you, just, I, I'm just, I'm just ready to pounce on that best board game movie ever. Oh, uh, okay. I'll, I'll give you a second. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because Clue exists. Hold on. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, Clue and Beyond Clue, Game Night is easily the top dog in this category. Well, okay, so Game Night, there's no game called Game Night. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm applying to. If you're, if that's right, so eligible, it has to, it has I to come agree. from the literal. Okay, fine. yes, there is a board that's literally a board game called Jumanji. Ready or not is good too, though. I guess that's also not a board game. Hide and seek would be eligible then. Okay, you could have that. The Dakota Fanning movie with Robert De Niro. You could have hide there, and seek. Thank you. That's very fair. Uh, Truth or Dare, I guess, would be the one from a couple oh, years that's ago. A, that's that's very bad. Also, that's also <laughs> I, very I, bad. I've seen that to you. Although that like introduced like rules to truth of day that I were, wasn't aware for that you can't do the same thing three times in a row there I took something <laughs> from that movie wow. anyway uh, my number one is going to be Jumanji my number two is going to be her performance in Sofia Coppola's directorial debut uh, The Virgin Suicides this is a dark movie the title probably gives that away it's a movie I don't really revisit a lot it hits a lot of the uh, suburban anxiety that we've brought up throughout the pod uh, in the past. Uh, 
even though I don't revisit it, her performance is definitely something that stuck with me. And if you've never seen it, I'm sure it'll stick with you too. Uh, to liven things up, Bring It On is going to be about number three. And this is partly because I just don't have a lot of time for her Lars von Trier collaborations. But um, that movie, while being a cheesy movie about like two battling cheerleading squads, also has a lot to say about cultural appropriation. Uh, It also is the reason that every time since seeing it, if someone says that's cold in here, I respond with there must be some clovers in the atmosphere. Uh, so bring it out. I'll be my number three. And then back to back Spider-Man two will be my number four and Spider-Man will be my number five. And I'm able to separate them because Spider-Man two has some layers to it in that Jameson's kid is not like a bad match for her, a very sensible option for her as well. And it's made very clear that, her struggle is not like stick with the asshole to then stay with the nerd or go chase after the nerd. Like that's not the choice she has to make. It's literally whether to follow her heart to go after Peter, who she actually wants to be with, but has no idea if he's going to be able to like keep it together for her. And then obviously by the end, she finds out that he's Spider-Man. Although the reason I separate it from the second one is because she's more of the girl next door in the first one. And the last scene, that last kiss that they have where she like puts her hands to her face and realizes, oh, Peter, Spider-Man. And that's never addressed until the very end of the movie. Did that not mean what I thought it was supposed to be when I first saw it? The glance in the graveyard at the end of Spider-Man 1, I don't know how else to read it other than this is very clearly uh, an acknowledgement that she knows. And there's some subtext in two that she knows. But why, why play so why play so dumb about it? Like it, it, it doesn't, it's very, very strange from a, a screenwriting perspective. Maybe the best thing about, about Kevin Feige dominating all these Marvel movies is that that sort of ambiguity would absolutely be paid off in the next one. And they wouldn't just write it off because they want to play up the difficulty of balancing Spider-Man and Peter Parker as two separate identities. Okay, good. I, I didn't know if it was just me. So I'm, I'm glad you're able to confirm it as well. Um, I like her as Mary Jane though. And that's why it takes up 40% of my list. Oz, your top five Kirsten Dunst performances. Uh, my number one is her best ever performance. That's Melancholia, the Lars von Trier movie, which has come up a number of times about the pending end of the world and how people handle it emotionally. Uh, I think this one is worth tracking down if you're going to push yourself as a cinephile. Uh, <laughs> my number two is Sofia Coppola's Marie. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Was that shade? Was that shade that I need to go push myself as a no, cinephile? No, 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 no. Not, not, well, not intentionally. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I think, look, I, I I get it. There's like large frontier shit that's not not for me even. Um, but I, I think that Melancholy is a very interesting movie. It's not, but it's not really particularly mainstream or anything like that. There's it's it's not like it's it it's just less. I don't know, overtly gross. It's faster moving. It's funnier than some of his other movies. So I, I think it's I guess in that way more accessible. Uh, my number two is Sofia Coppola Coppola's Marie Antoinette, where I think that Dunst is the movie's kind of a mess, but I think that she is absolutely excellent as this sort of 
lost person who's been subsumed by the opulence that surrounds her. Uh, I think it's just a good, interesting performance that that is achieved through a lot of subtle facial acting. There, there's no big moments here, and a lot of it is her subtly and slyly reacting to the chaos and the the uh, sort of crazed displays of wealth happening around her. Uh, my number three is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is, um, I think, one of the best movies of the decade that it came out in and an utterly wonderful love story. Uh, and I think that she's a fantastic supporting part in it. I might, I, 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 she's not in it a ton. So maybe I'm, I'm overrating it a bit, but whatever. I love that movie. Uh, my number four is a movie that I'm not sure anyone has ever seen called Dick. Uh, it's her. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a grown up. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I mean, after we started with the kiss, I knew I'd get a giggle when I uh-huh. told you that I was picking Kirsten Dunst's dick for uh-huh. uh, a movie. But it, it's her and Michelle Williams as these two hippie girls who managed to ingratiate them way their way into the Nixon White House and become Nixon's advisors uh, on Watergate. Okay, uh, and it's actually a. a I, I haven't seen it for a number of years, so maybe the, the Trump era has ruined it. But it, at least at the time and in the years after, it was a very funny political satire that she's absolutely excellent in and better than Michelle Williams in it. And my number five is a film that just came out on Netflix a week ago called The Power of the Dog, which I won't talk about extensively because you should just go watch it because it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a very good film about uh, shitty toxic masculinity, sort of, but also sort of not. Uh, and it's Western and she's excellent and she plays the, the wife of the Benedict Cumberbatch character uh, and is just fucking great. Yes. Uh, the sister-in-law because she's plays Jesse Plemons' wife in that movie who plays Cumberbatch's brother. Um, yeah, I'm giving myself some time. I'll put it as an honorable mention, but I, I want to let it breathe before I know whether or not I'm putting it on my on my top five. Uh, and my other honorable mention was going to be Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That movie as a whole, uh, I love. And as a supporting, like you mentioned, she's not really in it that much. But as a supporting performance, she's she's absolutely outstanding. Um, your honorable mentions us. I have I haven't seen The Beguiled. It's kind of a it seems like the sort of thing I would have seen. So it's a weird hole. Also for me. Coppola. Yeah. Yep. But otherwise, uh, my honorable mentions: Bring It On, Little Women, Interview with a Vampire, Virgin Suicides, and the first Spider Man. You know what's gonna happen? One day I'm gonna do a Lars von Trier marathon. And then come out on the other side, a different person, a much darker person it's when gonna we discuss you. movies. It's going to turn you into um, me. Yeah. The house that Jack built is just going to be, I'm going to talk about it and uh, in a way that makes me look at all, like Encanto is going to actually be this dark tale of <laughs> your parents, your family doesn't love you. Yeah. I miss them a lot today. I know. I miss him too. But he was there. I can't help thinking about the last thing I said to him. He tried to tell me something important and I threw it in his face. You loved him. And he loved you. He never doubted the man you'd grow into. How you were meant for great things. You won't disappoint him. So, is Spider-Man a top five James Franco performance? Um, We've hinted at it when it comes to talking about actors that have been quote-unquote canceled. 
I don't know if I've said it on the pod, but I, I know I've said it to you that one of the more heartbreaking ones, like understanding it should have happened, like the allegations and reports against James Franco are warranted, I think, the, of, of his cancellation. But I was really enjoying this dude's career and I really enjoy his filmography to the point where this was one of the easier things for me to do. His top five movies. I was appreciating the celebrity that I knew from afar. There is some really great comedic work. There's some really great serious work in his career. His roast is my favorite of the comedy central roasts. They're just all so stoned. And then you get that. (laughs) Then you get the Andy Samberg performance, which Listen, if we ever yeah. do an Andy Samberg before, uh, top five, that's my number one. I don't care that it's not a movie. <laughs> um, and then 2017 happens, and then allegations are made against him that have only continued to rise in number. Uh, this uh, Is this the first canceled actor that we've done so far, Oz? I, I don't want to say canceled because I think it's a it's a silly kind of misnomer Under- term. Understanding, but, but from but the Hollywood, yeah, quote-unquote canceled. Uh, aside from my weird pathological inability to leave Mel Gibson movies off of my lists <laughs> and needing to mention what a piece of shit he is every week. Uh, yeah, this is the first person that we're, we're going to talk about who I think is, you know, no longer welcome uh, in the, at least in the mainstream of the industry. Uh, I think that he largely appears to have just stepped back, which is probably for the best. And I, I don't know if we'll probably get an apology tour in two years and a book and an effort to get back in. Um, but it does seem that all of the, the Apato crew have kind of turned their backs on him at this point, which in some ways is really the most damning that he's lost all of his in industry supporters, um, even more than someone like Louis C.K., but it's kind of a bummer. But uh, I, I think James Franco is a really good actor, so it makes me sad. I, I really think he's a good dramatic actor, and he sells for me some comedy beats that I don't usually find funny. Um I'm not a, I'm not like stoner comedy is not my thing. And you'll be hearing Pineapple Express in just a few moments in my list because I think he's so, so good and natural and funny in, in that way. I just think he has this sort of sweet, schmucky goofiness in his comedic persona, which is good. I think he does a really good meta thing throughout a bunch of his stuff. He does it in This is the End. He does it even better in The Night Before, this sort of, uh, play, playing up this like larger, larger than life version of himself that I, I think is really, it's kind of smart meta comedy. And I think I think he's a, a, a fine dramatic actor. What he's not is a blockbuster leading man. He's very bad in things like Flyboys and stuff like that. But if you if you keep him to doing like serious acting work and comedy, he's a really really good actor. Yeah, that Apatow crew is fucking hilarious. And again, I'm, I don't want to harp on like what I lost in not being able to watch James Franco movies anymore. Pineapple Express is one of my favorite comedies ever. And it will also be coming up on my list in just a second. And this is the end might also be coming up in just a second. Um, Yeah. I, man, that whole Apatow crew is at his roast. That would be my bigger recommendations. If you can seek out the James Franco roast on Comedy Central, they have clips up it on of it up on YouTube. Then you go to ComedyCentral.com. You can rent it for like five bucks. Then you go to Apple, just rent it for like two, three bucks. It's it's 
some of the hardest laughs that I've ever had is watching the James Franco roast. Um, Oz, your top five James Franco performances. Uh, my number one is what I actually think is one of the finest performances of the decade, which is Danny Boyle's 127 Hours, which is about a mountain climber who gets caught in uh, underneath a rock. His arm gets caught under a rock for 127 hours before he has to cut his own arm off in order to escape uh, said mountain crevice. Have you seen the 60 Minutes on this, dude? I have not. The actual real story, and then you watch the movie, because this is my number one, too, so we'll just get it out the way together. Um, it is, like, terrifying being stuck in that situation, and all of the notes, I guess, that Alex gave to Boyle and to Franco on how to do the story of the visions and the delusions that he was getting to... And how like he saw, like, I, I guess we're spoiled. You, you said it, he has to cut his arm off because that's I mean, the yeah, only way he lives to tell the story of the movie. Um, then the arm cutting scene is like unreal. And the 60 minutes takes him back to the rock where he cut his arm off. Like Chris Rock has this joke, <laughs> SNL reference. Chris Rock has a joke when he hosted SNL once where he said like, I once got robbed on 187th and 8th back in nine, in the 90s. I have not been back to 187th and 8th <laughs> since. And I just, the, six, the, the therapeutic nature in which that 60 minutes and then this movie were for Alex, add on to the per Franco performance here. He's amazing in this. He's amazing. And look, the notion that a, a movie, usually we have these trapped environment movies. They're, they're fairly common. A lot of them are, are pretty good, but usually they're like, I don't know, Blake Lively is stuck on a rock while a shark is circling her. So there's something to do. She can move around the rock. She can try to get out in the water. She can do all, all sorts of things to give us a little bit of visual dynamism and to give something to emote against. Franco can't fucking move. So to hold your attention and not just casually, this is like a rapt attention movie. They, the PR people for this movie, uh, gave out to folks. I, I don't know why I got one for like my shitty little blog 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whenever this came out. Um, a t-shirt that said, I kept my eyes open for 127 hours. They're the PR people because of how like difficult and graphic and everything the final, the final scene is. But this is an incredibly good performance that's surprisingly vibrant and interesting. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, it's not Saw or something like that, waiting to see if someone's going to cut off their own fucking leg. This is this is like almost a life affirming thing. The direction's amazing. I hope we do Danny Boyle someday soon because I think he's a fascinating, albeit flawed director. Uh, this movie is really good, and this performance is really, really, really good, and uh, should have been more recognized in real time. Uh, my number two James Franco performance is uh, Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers, where he plays a Florida drug lord in what is a really shocking shockingly against type casting that he's very good in. It's it, You don't think of James Franco as being physically imposing and genuinely intimidating, though perhaps when you cast him across from small women like Vanessa Hudgens, it, it carries a different effect. But he is really, really, uh, really impressive and menacing here. My number three is, as I mentioned, Pineapple Express, which is my favorite of his kind of goofy doofus comedies. Uh, and I think that he's just really funny here and makes the stoner humor that doesn't usually work for me work incredibly well here. And his chemistry with Seth Rogen is absolutely incredible. And I, I love seeing them on screen together and perhaps nowhere more than here. My number four is the 
only good film he's ever directed. And he's directed like 15 movies and they're all fucking awful, except for this one, The Disaster Artist, which is a wonderful movie about a truly awful movie that is not even like kitschily bad. I don't I don't get it. Like the room is terrible and it's amazing. It is the worst thing. It's embarrassing that people. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Grab but, your plastic utensils and come meet me, guys. I got you. But uh, yeah, the, he he's really good as Wiseau. It's it's a different gear for him as a performer, and I think it quite works. And my number five, I guess I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna contradict myself a little bit and take a blockbuster. I think it's very good in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, mm. but that's not really a conventional blockbuster. It's kind of a, a it's kind of a very muted blockbuster really the whole series is that series is wonderful and deserves a lot more acclaim and reverence but uh he he's really very good as caesar the main apes kind of father figure uh and it's it's much more muted human level performance than a movie about talking apes taking over the world might otherwise be uh and he's an important element of why this film and later this franchise works so well so let's go with rise of the planet of the apes for my fifth place my number one honorable mention for James Franco, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. That movie is great. That trilogy is great. It's actually very underrated. Um, for all the reasons we said, as mentioned already, the uh, 127 Hours is my number one. And look, I knew the story going in. So there's an, an, an there was an anticipation for that 127th hour. And yet Franco still kept me entertained and interested in his story to the entire two-hour runtime. So that's that's a credit to him. Um, Spring Breakers, as you mentioned, is my number two. Yeah, these are the tier, clear top two. And it's funny, I really wanted to put The Disaster Artist, which is my number three, ahead of it. Rewatched, the, rewatched Spring Breakers for this pod. Shout out A24. The moment he gets them out of jail and he pops up on screen, it's like, yeah, okay, I can't, I can't objectively do this. It's his number two, uh, very entertaining performance movie. Could use some tweaks here and there, but I, I, I quite enjoy James Franco, James Franco in that, and may enjoy some versions of Vanessa Hudgens in that as well. Um, number three is a disaster artist. I am a fan of the absurdity of the room. The accidental brilliance that it is the drinking game that it can be i also read the greg sistero book he plays mark in the movie and it has a lot of heart that's what the disaster artist is based off of it's called the disaster artist's book um i'm not sure if you've read the book but are you aware of why in the room greg is called mark no but i will say that as as uh someone who's seen that movie i the the idea of reading a book by that guy sort of is appalling I get because it. I doubt he I can read, it. let alone. Uh, listen, there is a lot of heart in that story. These are two dudes, like the disaster artist tells it. These are two dudes that were in acting classes. Probably should they're, they're, like they didn't make it. The room obviously changed that, but like they have a dream. They move to LA. They try to make it. And Mark in the room is named after Tommy Wiseau's favorite actor. Do you know who it is? Uh, no. Matt Damon. Oh, oh God. I think I did know that actually. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the disaster artist is my number three. The disaster artist is like if, if Kyrie Irving cured COVID or something like that, that's, that's about. (laughs) (laughs) So he made the worst possible thing. A good thing. (laughs) That is, that is a, 
take the disaster. <laughs> that should be on the poster. That should be your letterbox review of the disaster artist. Um, my number four is Pineapple Express. As Oz mentioned, one of the funniest movies ever, in in my opinion. Um, he for, he plays Saw the the dealer in the movie and has easily my favorite line when they had fallen asleep in the car overnight and wake up and the battery's dead because Seth Rogen was listening to talk radio and he's explaining it to Saul and Franco goes like um, man talk radio so boring it's like the car committed suicide and I'll laugh at that every single time that I see it and then another one of his comedies is my number five Uh, I mentioned it uh, I think in a previous episode i forget even which one but this is the end is one of my favorite oh horror comedy from ghostbusters this is the end is one of my favorite uh meta comedies where with the the apocalypse of it all and uh again they're all playing uh versions of themselves and i like being able to laugh at themselves honorable mentions and this is a controversial take um, I mentioned War- Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but then my number one version of Harry Osborn, I, I noticed it this week while doing the Spider-Man rewatches that my number one for him would actually be Spider-Man 3, the portion in which he has lost his memory and convincingly plays somebody that... Uh, has suffered short-term memory loss and does not know why he hates Peter Parker and um, the innocence that he plays for that that hour on screen I thought was actually really well done compared to the rest of that movie, which is really bad. I actually quite liked Franco in it. I respectfully disagree about anything good about James Franco in Spider-Man 3. Oh, wow. Anything good about Franco in 3? Okay. I think, I think Franco is terrible in three really in three terrible i think he's utterly lost on what the fuck the character is supposed to be doing because the motivations don't actually make any sense and i i think his performance reflects that isn't that the point he gets a traumatic head injury and now he's lost yes right i i don't think you in fact you (laughs) brought up how defoe reacts to the mirror and everything uh and how it's actually pretty effective and chilling in the first spider-man and it's farcical when he has to do the same thing when he's looking at the painting of his dad and has like the revelation of his goblin nature. I, I just I think he's embarrassingly bad in Spider-Man 3. I think he's I think it might be the worst performance of his entire career aside from the stuff he directed. I think he's he's really awful. I think Dunst is really awful in Spider-Man 3 also. I think, well, I think duh, Toby is duh. really awful. I think everyone is really awful. Topher Grace at the low note of Thomas Hayden Church is the only person who comes out of that movie alive. Everyone else sucks. I agree about everything except Franco then because I there's nothing good about Spider-Man 3 is why Spider-Man 1 I think is suffering so much today and it's why it's why I think Spider-Man 2 is able to stand the test of time because it survives the um, shit that gets poured on it next to Spider-Man 3 I man when he's falling in love with MJ for like remembers that they dated and like wrote her a play like yeah I'm I dig it man I'm so, this see funny the way that you're describing Spider-Man 3 is actually how I feel about him in Spider-Man 2 I think he's overacting I think he's overacting in Spider-Man 2 also but I think it's at least vaguely more effective than 3 okay maybe Harry Osborn and can Concussion protocols is <laughs> where I was able to find a little bit more uh, more depth uh, to the character. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Remember your little accident in the laboratory? Performance enhancers. Bingo. Me, your greatest creation. Bringing you what you've always wanted. Power beyond your wildest dreams. And it's only the beginning. There's only one who can stop us. Or imagine if he joined us. <laughs> Next up is Spider-Man, a top five Danny Elfman score. Uh, you love this exercise of listening to a composer score for a week. What stood out to you listening to, to Danny Elfman's filmography? What blew me away with Danny Elfman, and, and I was shocked to see this, is how many scores the man has done it's actually sort of insane i he's composed 114 scores according to letterboxd and i think that's understating it in some ways and i have seen like 79 of them which is also fucking crazy which means this person has been such a part of my life in film it's 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 kind of mind-blowing. I, I think he's wonderful. I think that he creates these sort of fantastical soundscapes that are quite different than any of the composers that we've talked about so far. We, you know, Just last week, we talked about Johnny Greenwood, who does things that really... They, they trigger your emotions, but aren't necessarily like, I'm going to put this on at the gym. We've talked about the sort of bombastic classical style composers, your Hans Zimmers and your John Williams before. Uh, I think that, that Elfman occupies this sort of different, almost puckish place in the way he writes his music. It's a lot more playful. It's a lot more tongue in cheek. It, it tends to be very suited to the, the vibe of the things that he's working on. Obviously, his classic, his classic contribution to film is all of his work with Tim Burton. And Tim Burton has a very, very specific aesthetic. Even if you're a casual film fan, if someone says, let's talk about a Tim Burton movie, everyone has an idea of what that means and what the, what that looks like and of what that sounds like. And it's the sound that Elfman brings to to that world. Uh, so yeah, I, I can't say this is my favorite re-listening because a lot of this stuff works better in context than as objective tracks, but I think he's wonderful. So here's where I struggle. Like specifically as it pertains to Spider-Man, the first movie, he literally creates the score that I hear every time I think of Spider-Man, the way he's like plucking on the strings in the beginning. It sounds like a spider crawling around, which I appreciate. And when I hear it, it's one of the more recognizable scores of my life. The way the music incites every time MJ is on screen. The issue I have is that it's very similar to Spider-Man 2. So I want to reward this movie that we're supposed to be doing about a review for. But the reality of the situation is that when it comes to Spider-Man in particular, I'm able to point to one or two more scenes where the score is featured that unfortunately I couldn't fit both on my list. And if I was going to pick one, 
I would pick the other. Having said that, one of the notes I wrote down when rewatching the first Spider-Man was like, this score like is still a banger. And that is a that is a credit to Elfman. What did you think? Totally agree on that. You know, I had the same dilemma with John Williams and Star Wars, where I picked a movie I don't like, episode three, because it lets me steal from the stuff I like of all of the movies to bring it together. You know, I'll just say I thought Spider-Man three was a good score, which surprised me. The part where Sandman comes back to life is this like really haunting, sad little bit of music that I think is is quite effective. I think he's great. Here, I, I think there's a pretty good case that this is the best, uh, you know, non of all the people that aren't John Williams and Hans Zimmer who have done superhero movies. This might be the best score or series of scores. I think Dark Knight and the original Superman are probably better, but otherwise, this is this is really right up there. It's 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 very memorable. I I suspect when Tobey Maguire is not in the movie, we won't have like a little tug at the heartstrings when this shows up in the score of No Way Home later this week. But uh, what are you this- talking about? <laughs> Jeez. But this is, it's really, it's its good, it's iconic, and it's enough that it pushed some movies that I thought would be on my list off. I mean, I, I, we're going to have a Spider-Man movie on my on my Elfman list. Okay. Well, oh, it's my turn to go first. I believe so. Um, and again, I have to go with specific scenes because Oz taught me about this and it has actually really worked for how I can differentiate certain movies from the other. And it's why my number one, and it's, it's really not close, especially after revisiting it this week. Multiple tracks from this movie soundtrack made it onto like my liked playlist for Spotify. And it's Goodwill Hunting. Um, my easily favorite Danny Elfman maybe moment in movies is the score that's playing either when the opening credits are playing, a very strong opening credits in Goodwill Hunting, or when Robin Williams is telling Will about the night that he met his wife for the first time. And he's retelling um, the story of game six of the 1975 world series or the iconic, it's not your fault scene or like I could keep going. There are so many notes that the music plays a part in why I enjoy that movie. Like the closing credits even are, are featured really well. So, um, Goodwill Hunting will be my number one. Um, my number two is gonna be Spider Man Two. Um, I, I just I couldn't deny that I think the first superhero film score that I found recognizable in my life was the opening credits to the first Spider Man, uh, first Spider Man, and then how it's utilized in Spider Man Two. I think it's done just a little bit better. Um, the one scene that stood out to me above the rest and specifically pertaining the score to a scene is when the train sequence happens and the crowd is carrying him um, like across because he's passed out because he just did comic book superhero shit. Um, that was a, a moment where the score stood out to me. Um my number three is going to be Batman. And the only reason that Batman's not higher is because I wanted to highlight what I what stood out to me first, like what hit me first in life. Um, I don't think I need to talk about how iconic his film score is in Batman too much, though. While, man, one day we're going to have to do a Batman movie you like because like th- I like this the Dark Knight just fine. Uh, yeah. OK. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? I just I just don't like it the way bros on IMDb uh-huh. rating boards like it. Okay. Um so 
Batman's my number three. <laughs> um, my number four is a movie called uh, The Next Three Days. So I dislike that movie enough that I skipped it on my realist name. Really? So, okay. Yeah. So The Next Three Days, for those who have no idea what movie I'm talking about, Russell Crowe is married to Elizabeth Banks. Elizabeth Banks is accused and charged and then convicted of murdering her boss. Um, he exhausts all their resources and then decides the only solution is to break her out of prison. The score as he's figuring out all the different ways, the people he goes to talk to and how to make this work. And if he gets her out, how long you have to leave. And then the last 40 minutes of that movie, the tension in which they're trying to do something and then the score matching what's going on on screen is perfect and it is a it is a doozy of a final last 30 minutes that i quite enjoy and the music helps a lot oz has been giving me a look this entire is time this, is this when you want to admit that you prefer crash to brokeback mountain no those people? why because you're supporting a Paul Haggis movie now. So I can Paul support this. I can support this Paul Haggis movie. That's okay. Actually, Paul Haggis is good at one thing, and that's rewriting Casino Royale, which is the best dialogue of any Bond movie. So, so I, Paul, you no, no, no. I'm I'm going back in the recording and post and grabbing the Paul Haggis <laughs> sucks, and I'm gonna make it your ringtone. So that way, <laughs> you forever will be known as Paul Haggis sucks, the guy responsible for your favorite, the dialogue in your favorite James Bond movie. <laughs> there you go, Oz. How do you like them apples? Um, <laughs> my number five is gonna be a toss-up. Um, I really like the score in Silver Linings Playbook. I like the score in Mission Impossible while recognizing he's not responsible for the iconic theme and if he was it would be a clear number five maybe even higher uh i like the score in men in black i like the score in big fish a movie i'm assuming is going to come up in just a second uh, and i really like the score in milk another james franco performance um oz your top five danny elfman scores my number one is very clear for me and kind of different than yours and i think it's wonderful both as a score but also because he wrote lyrics and songs for this movie and in fact sings them uh and that's the nightmare before christmas uh danny elfman is the singing voice of jack skellington i in fact saw danny elfman perform it at um it, it, the what, what what do they call it these days the, the place where the nets play um barclay Center. I, I know <laughs> <Barclay>. um <laughs> The Clays. That's right. The Clays. I forgot that. That's right. MS, MSG2. Mm-hmm. Uh, MSG's Road Stadium. Um, yeah, I saw I saw him do it there. It was really it was really cool and really impressive. Uh, I think I think that all of the music in that is iconic. I think that the songs are incredible. I don't quite know how to parse out the songwriting from the score. They're clearly a, a bunch of intersection between the score and the songs and the songs kind of are repurposed to make up the score. I think it's wonderful and I think it's it's Elfman's best work, which is saying something because he's really good. Can I shamefully admit something? Oh my God, you've never seen it? I've seen it like once though. Like as it's a like, kid. It's like 71 minutes long. Right. I've seen it once though. It, you, you, have, you have to watch it for our Christmas episode. I will watch it for a Christmas episode. I promise. But I'm just shamefully admitting I've only seen it once and it was as a kid. It's, it's really good. It ages really well and there's all sorts of like strange dark shit in it that that's totally awesome. It, I I love this movie. My number two is Men in Black. I think the score is really good. It, it I, I can 
picture it in my brain instantly. Now, this Men in Black may be a movie that hit at the perfect time for me. I think I was 12 years old. I, it's like the first movie I ever saw early. It, it just really, it, it, it has like seared itself in my brain, despite the second one being quite awful and the third one quite mediocre. Uh, and the music really works. Uh, I, I love this score. I think it's so playful. I think it play, I, I think it eases into sort of 50s style music as well in a way that's quite creative. Uh, my number three is Big Fish, which it's like daddy issues dealt with through fantasy film. Um, let's just say a, a film about someone who has a con man father definitely works for me. <laughs> My number four, uh, and it, you know, actually, and on Big Fish, the one of the things that's interesting about it is how he needs to play a score that has two components to it, a real world component and a fantasy world component. And the way that he differentiates what's real and what's not, and then brings it all together at the end is really impressive composition work. I, I think it's I think it's great. Uh, my number four is Good Will Hunting for all the reasons you said. I agree entirely. And my number five is Spider-Man. I think Spider-Man 1, not Spider-Man 2. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Spider-Man 1 is a better integration of the music with what's happening on screen, which isn't to say that Spider-Man 2 is is bad. And frankly, the score is the best part of Spider-Man 3. Um, it's just, I, I think it works. I think it's creating an iconography, whereas 2 is benefiting from a pre-existing iconography of music and there are there are moments like when he's learning to use his powers that are so vivid for me from a a score and songwriting perspective that i'm I'm gonna go with spider-man one here so quick clarification Mm -hmm. um i'm also because you're right we gotta i gotta get more points on here for spider-man i'm gonna put spider-man as my number two rather than spider-man two um spider-man two will get its flowers in a different category later on i think uh and my honorable mentions are uh, Pick them with Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands for an iconic Tim Burton, Danny Elfman collaboration. Batman is wonderful. Uh, Mission Impossible, as you said, is wonderful. And I'll throw Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, in the mix, which is a movie that I love and is wonderful in all elements of production design. And the score is a big part of it. That movie is very good and perhaps the most underrated superhero movie of our era of comic book stuff now. So my other honorable mention... um will be a movie called Notorious, a biopic about the Notorious B.I.G. It's honorable and it's very lower down my list. The soundtrack is obviously what people will go to for that movie because it's literally Biggie music. So obviously that's what you go to for it. Um, There are some in-between sequences where it's Biggie alone by himself that I do think highlight some of the quieter moments of that movie where, look, as an audience, there's an impending doom waiting for us at the end of this that we all know is coming. And I think the score highlights that that emotion extremely well. Um, so yeah, those that, that was Danny Elfman. Your mother was beautiful too. They're all beautiful until they're snarling after your trust fund like a pack of ravening wolves. You're wrong about her, Dad. A word to the not-so-wise about your little girlfriend. Do what you need to with her, then broom her fast. Thanks for sticking up for me, Harry. You heard? Everyone heard that creep. The creep is my father, all right? If I'm lucky, I'll become half of what he is. So just keep your mouth shut about stuff you don't understand. Harry Osborne. Next up is a repeat category. 
Spider-Man a top five superhero film. It, it, it is just a shame that we unfortunately had to put this here because like, it's a superhero movie. Every time we do a superhero movie, we're going to include this category. Just a quick recap. We've done the top two movies already on this podcast that are on my top five. That's Logan, the noir version, and The Dark Knight. Um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is my number three. The Incredibles is my number four. And Infinity War slash Endgame is my number five. Oz, what are your top five superhero films? Uh, my top four remain the same. Spider-Verse number one, Logan number two, Endgame number three, uh, Spider-Man two number four. I'm not feeling Superman this week. Superman was my number five the last time I did it. So I'm going to I'm gonna go off the grid here a little bit. And it's only because I've now seen this movie like six times. I knew uh, it! I it's knew on, it! It's on in my house all the time. My kid loves it. Uh, the song from it is the thing that makes him dance the most. And I wish it would inspire the Knicks to start better because it's what they play before <laughs> they start uh, before they start other games. Uh, and that is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is incredibly rewatchable. It has fantastic action. It's really funny. The pacing is right on point. And it has the best... I, I actually think I'm, I'm happy to say now the best MCU villain ever. Uh, yep, I know. Um, I think oh, it's the best okay. MCU villain now. It's. I think this movie really, really, really works. It's really... It's past the rewatchability test in a way that I, I didn't quite expect it to do so ably. I love it. It's... I... I just, I love it. I can't wait for the next one. I, I think it's great. So I think we spoiled another category. We'll just, we'll kind of buzz through this real quick. We spoiled another category in what our number ones will be. Next up, we're going to keep going and do a game that I love to play on this and ask, is Spider-Man a top five movie of 2002? And see if Oz can guess the top five highest grossing at the domestic box office in 2002. Um, I mentioned earlier, Oz, that uh, Spider-Man made over $821 million worldwide. At the time, it was the highest grossing superhero movie of all time. Um, It also was the first movie ever to gross over $100 million in a single weekend. And I say all that and then ask you, Oz, was it the highest grossing domestic movie of 2002? And what are the top five highest grossing movies at the domestic box office in your release of 2002? Uh, Spider-Man absolutely was. And it's a big part of the uh, post 9-11 move into sort of escapist fantasy at the theaters. Uh, so it's not surprising that it's a movie that that really resonated in uh, with the populace. Uh, I, I, I actually know some of them this year. This is a, a strong year for me, but also because some of them show up on my on my 2002 list. Uh, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers is going to be up there. Number two. The first Harry Potter is going to be up there. Number four. A movie that will not ever be showing up on my list. Uh, Attack of the Clones, I think, will be up there. Number three. Catch Me If You Can. Catch Me If You Can is number 11. I mean, 170, 164 million. Let's think of animated movies. Lilo and Stitch. Lilo and Stitch is number 14. 145 million. Monsters Incorporated. Monsters Inc. is further down. Um, I don't see it. There's that, that I'll say. It's not in the top 10, not in the top 15. Mm, I don't know. Am I missing a franchise movie? This, well, yeah, there's two of them. Um, the the film has five words in it. I'll play picture. I'll play Pictionary. Oh, not Pictionary. I'll play Charades. Um, first word, <laughs> me. Uh, so I'm pointing at myself. You. So possession, me. Your. Ver- my. 
Oh my! I, my okay. My. Second word. I'm I'm making my arms tall by my big fat Greek wedding. My big fat Greek wedding. I did it. Fuck that movie. But uh, yeah. Really? Right. Oh, That's, dude, that made that much money. Yes, Holy made two hundred and forty-one million dollars at the domestic box office in two thousand two. What else is in the top ten? Just out of curiosity. Signs, and oh, like Shyamalan's love, movie is. I love that num- movie. It will come up in just a second. Um, Austin Powers in Goldmember is I number do not seven. Love that movie. All right. Men in Black Two is number eight. Very I, bad. Not one hundred percent sure. I've I have seen. It's a Bismarcky scene. Um, Ice Age animated that's, movie. That's okay. Uh, is number nine. Um, and then Chicago. Our our friend is. Uh, not not the Cubs or the Bulls, but the movie. Um, Chicago. Back in the era when Best Picture winners didn't make $11 million. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Do you think think they're going to make that much going forward? Um, Chicago is my number 10. Uh, is the number 10. Uh, Die Another Day, a Bond movie. Um, made uh, 160. It's number 12. So I figured that was the other one to bring up. 2002. Good movie year. You mentioned, you just hinted at it, the post 9-11 of it all obviously plays a part in the domestic part of it. For whatever reason, this this was a, a big movie year for me. Maybe it's because I had a car for the first time and could go uh, to the movies myself. Okay. I think that that's probably part of it. Um, there are, I was surprised because when I first glanced at like, what are the movies that came out this year and the Oscar nominees, I was a little soft on it. And I tend to think of this year as the year that either Daniel Day-Lewis or Jack Nicholson were supposed to win and they split the vote for Best Actor and Adrian Brody ran away with it for for The Pianist. But um, I... And, you know, really you mentioned, I forgot about Die Another Day. That movie fucking sucks. And Men in Black 2 sucks. There's just a lot of very bad mainstream movies this year. And maybe that kind of tars this for me a bit. But then I did my list and I was like, shit, there are like 18 movies that I think are are quite good. Many of them are not going to show up on your box office chart. But uh yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of solid movies this year. Is it the best year of the decade? Hell no. Is it better than I had thought starting this exercise? Yeah, by a good deal actually. Yeah, and it's why like look, I, I don't want to be a downer here, but you really did just hint at the post 9-11 of it all. And my number one will reflect that in, in just a second. We haven't talked about the trailer that got taken down from the original Spider-Man where there was a, a chase scene and Spider-Man spins a web in between the two towers. And then 9-11 happens. They delete said trailer from existence, although you can find it on YouTube if you want to now. And it added a different level of um, appreciation for the first Spider-Man when you saw a a Queens native, a New York native saving the world or saving the day while going from skyscraper to skyscraper in New York City. Um, yeah, the, that's at least where Spider-Man falls into the mix. And it's why it's probably no coincidence that it's the number one movie of this year. Oz, on your list, though, what are your top five films of 2002? Uh, My number one is a very strange movie, uh, which I I think actually ended up winning a couple Academy Awards. Uh, It is the Spike Jonze-directed Charlie Kaufman written adaptation, uh, which features a a perhaps best of career, though I guess we'll do him someday, Nicolas Cage, performance about an author who is struggling to adapt Susan Orlean's The White Oleander and the sort of mental headspace trauma and and tribulation he must go through to try to write this as it kind of comes to life around him in his head or in real life. Uh, This movie is awesome. It's incredibly well written. It, It has 
maybe my favorite Meryl Streep performance also. Chris Cooper is in it and is fantastic. This movie is, is really good. It's really funny. It's very strange. Uh, strong recommend. My number two uh, is a movie called, and we, we got we to gotta hit up the Criterion Collection here, a movie called Etu Mama Tambien, which is an Alfonso Cuaron movie. Uh, it's, a, it's a road trip movie about two buddies. It's a road trip movie and a love triangle movie about two buddies who go on a road trip with an older woman. Uh, they're both kind of in love with the older woman. And it's got some very French New Wave vibes to it, but it's so vibrantly made. It's actually quite funny. It's pretty lurid. Uh, this, this is a this is a great movie. And then Quaron went on to make uh, a lot of other movies that we talk about quite frequently on this podcast, like Children of Men. Uh, my number three is a movie that I, I just, I think I undersold too much when we did Sam Mendes on, on Skyfall. Uh, and that's Road to Perdition, which is the mob film where Tom Hanks plays a... You didn't undersell it on Skyfall. You actually made up for it on Skyfall. Oh, yes. Because you I, undersold, undersold it on, it on Good Hanks. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, on Goodfellas. On, on, on Goodfellas. Mob movies. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this movie is really good. It, it's one of Hank's best performances. It has an incredible Paul Newman performance. It has baby Daniel Craig in it. This movie is is great. It's really stylishly made. It's actually adapted from a comic book or a graphic novel or wh- whichever way this one chooses to define itself. Uh, this is a really interesting, well-done movie. My number four is Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I'm sure we'll do a Lord of the Rings movie someday and I'll save my frothy love of them for then. Uh, and my number five, feel free to pick uh, Minority Report or Catch Me If You Can. I love them both. They're both wonderful. They're both Spielberg. I, it's probably Minority Report. I put Minority Report on my Spielberg list. And Catch Me If You Can was a runner-up. So I'll be consistent and say Minority Report, but they're both wonderful for very different reasons. How high do you go before you get to Spider-Man? Or how low do you go before you get to Spider-Man? Spider-Man is 12th on my list. Okay. I rank Not eight, bad. I rank 18 movies and it's 12th. Okay. So I have my number one is the movie... I from 2002 that I take away most as an adult and then my number two was my favorite movie in that year because I wanted to give Spider-Man some love here um what did you oh, omit yeah I had a huge omission oops oh that you know it's what be I haven't num- started yet it's gonna be your number one right uh, uh 25th hour is my number one. Oh yeah fuck me um I'm what do you want to bump what do you want to bump yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna bump the Spielberg movies and put 25th okay. hour fifth yeah 25th hour there is I don't we talked last week about school shooter movies like how that's a genre I also hate that 9-11 movies is a genre um but this one day we're gonna do Spike Lee and I'll wax poetic about this a little bit because I think this is a clear like still trying to get by and get over it kind of movie that I look if you haven't seen it please check it out even though the content of it is a little it's tough for people that grew up where where you and I grew up at least. Um so um twenty fifth hour will be my number one. Let, let me play the trivia game with you. Do you know who wrote it? I don't know. And who wrote the book it's based on? No. David Benioff, who's better known oh, as Oh shoot. Benioff and Weiss, yeah. Yeah, he's the he's the generally considered the sort of uh goober of the two on the Game of Thrones team, but he's got some greatness in him. This is fantastic stuff. And he wrote the book too. Mm-hmm. He wrote the book and then wrote the screenplay adaptation of it. Oh, okay. Also wrote the script for a Tobey Maguire movie that I didn't mention because I hate it um, called Brothers. Um, oh, which, yeah. It's a bad movie. That's, we will not acknowledge that. Although I really like Hall, just not him in that movie. That, that, that movie is why the Golden Globe nominations came out this morning as we're recording. Uh, that movie is 
one of the things pointed to as to why we don't have Golden Globes anymore, because DiCaprio famously bought a giant party and invited over every member of the Hollywood Foreign Press for a big party at his place just to promote Brothers to get his buddy Toby McGuire a nomination. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we we kind of blanked on it earlier, but the best Toby McGuire movie is uh, is Molly's Game, when you really think about it. <laughs> That's that's anybody who's seen Molly's game knows exactly what I'm talking about. I look, I I'll I understand why Marvel's not gonna be doing a lot of PR work with Toby Maguire in the next couple bit. of weeks. A little bit. Um number one is twenty fifth hour, number two is Spider Man. Um I had to go just with the movie that as a kid that I appreciated the most. Even to this day, I still think I was back a weirdo, th- like while, being like, "Oh well, shit, yeah. I love that too, Mama Tommy," and I'm 17 years old. <laughs> well, don't don't go too far. That, I love you, too, Mama Tommy, and that is a, a great movie. It just misses my list, but it uh, listen. One, we have. I should make this announcement now. We have Children of Men on the list. There will be a full geek fest of all Alfonso Cuarón's works and why he's one of the greatest directors of all time that we will then discuss Ichimaba Tambien in a little more depth, but just misses my list. Spider-Man's my number two. Um, the Born Identity is my number three. Punch Drunk Love, shout out PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson is my number four. And we do not compare lists, I promise you, but I had as a toss-up for my number five, Catch Me If You Can or Minority Report, either of the Spielbergs. Um, honorable mentions. Let's bang them out real quick. Go back and forth. You're, you get to go first. Rapid fire. Unless you had a couple you wanted to expand on. Uh, 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later. Okay. I'll go with my number one honorable mention from this year, and it's Signs, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Starring good friend of the show, Mel Gibson. Uh, my number three honorable mention, that is uh, Spirited Away. Uh, Gangs of New York. About Schmidt. Eight Mile, baby. Shout out, Papa Doc. I like that movie. Uh, Unfaithful. Bring back sex in movies. Mm, yeah, tell me about it. Uh, Insomnia. Shout out, uh, that's uh, that's Nolan. Christopher Nolan. Nolan. Yeah, far from Heaven. Bend It Like Beckham. Shout out to me in 2002. <laughs> Kira Knightley. Uh, yes. Punch Drunk Love. Uh, you know, oh, we you said, said that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the yeah, Pianist. Yeah. Um, see... We set a bunch of them in the box office, so I'll keep going. Um, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. About a boy. Uh, City of God. That movie is awesome. Lilo and Stitch. Um, 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 the Hours. Monsters, Inc. <laughs> Austin Powers in Goldmember. That is a bad choice. Uh, talk to her, the Almodovar movie. I find it funny. Uh, two Weeks Notice. I'm I'm about tapped out on 2002. I'm, I'm so very tapped out. I was because we did the <laughs> exercise of saying the movies uh, that are in the top ten for the box office. We we did cover it in our top ten. Like Lord of the Rings, it was also my honorable mention. But yeah, I, when, I, I honorable mentioned all your all your uh, picks also. Um, real quick, is it a top? I, I mean. It is not a top five. Is Spider-Man a top five? It might be for you. It's second this year. It's possible. It's not. It's not. Unfortunately, it is not. It would make like, again, it's not even the top five Spider-Man movie or top 10 Spider-Man movie of 2000, of the 2000s, Um, which brings us to our final category. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us! Finish it! Finish it! 
Is Spider-Man a top five Spider-Man franchise movie? So, I guess we're going the cinematic universe, which has 10 films. We start with 02, we get Spider-Man, 03, or 04, we get Spider-Man 2. Um, then in 07, we get Spider-Man 3. In 2011, we get Spider-Man, um, The Amazing Spider-Man. In 2014, we get two, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. In 2017, we get Spider-Man Homecoming. In 2019, we get Spider-Man Far From Home. Um, then sprinkled in there is uh, 2018, we get Venom and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And then this year, 2021, we get Venom Let There Be Carnage. Is there anything I missed in there? Nope. That, that's, that's, that was all 10. We're, we're not going to count that 1978 made for TV movie. Yeah, I'm we'll not. Skip that. Never seen it, so that that that's a that's an Ozzy. Keep it right that there. way. Yep. Yeah. Um, do you have any strong feelings about the franchise as you have in the past and what the order should be? Uh, you know, I I kind don't here. I feel really strongly about what has to be number one, what has to be number two, and then it starts to get a little a little squidgy for me. I feel pretty good about what my number three is. Four, five, and six all kind of a coin flip, and it's very clear what the bottom two are. So let's start from the bottom. Let's let's go from bottom up. Because what is your worst in the franchise? Uh, my worst is Spider-Man Three. Okay, I hundred percent agree. My uh, number nine is Amazing Spider-Man Two. Can we discuss that just a little bit? Sure. Why is this movie so bad? And I agree that it's so bad, but why is it so bad? I think the only thing that's particularly good about it are the chemistry, the, the flirtation scenes between Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. I think the the ending kind of works. I remember feeling some feelings, but I think that that's also tethered directly to my attachment to this character and the importance of, of Gwen Stacy's death to, to the Spider-Man comic book character beyond necessarily this movie character. But I like watching the two of them together and I like almost nothing else about this movie. There's horrific miscasting. I think Jamie Foxx is, uh, I think it's just one of the worst villain performances ever in a superhero movie. And I'm just trying to ignore that as I get excited for No Way Home. Uh, there's just so much world building that goes nowhere because they're crazy. They're, it's it's a little like Justice League where we're just throwing a shitload of characters in the mix and just hoping that everyone picks up on it. But like Dane DeHaan is here, who's an actor I like, who's just utterly wasted. Felicity Jones shows up for like three minutes of this movie for no reason at all. Chris Cooper is here as like zombie Norman Osborn. There's just, there's so much shit in this movie that it, it becomes difficult to have any real engagement with the primary villain and difficult to have any real engagement with the primary relationship drama of the film. Yeah, that Jamie Foxx introduction to Electro scene in Times Square is one of the most cringeworthy scenes in both comic book and movie history. Um, number seven. Eight. Oh, what's number eight? What's number eight? Eight is a movie I I actually like. Don't don't get me wrong here. We're getting to movies that I think are, are net good, but my eight is going to be the first Venom. Okay. We have the same bottom three right now. Because the first Venom is very, it's kind of very sloppy. The Rissamed villain is quite terrible. Uh, it, it, you can feel that there's like a very conventional superhero movie that is trying to be made. And there's also Tom Hardy doing whatever the fuck he wants as a queer love story with his symbiote. And I think that the Tom Hardy stuff is fucking hilariously great bullshit and the superhero stuff is very very bad again 100 percent. i also just hate that it's not rated r like you give me a rated r movie and when a guy's head gets bit off there will be blood shout out to last week's episode and that's just not here in this movie so and uh 
relatedly then my number seven is going to be venom let there be carnage Mm, our first disagreement okay uh i think look i again i think it's pretty good um i it's net positive for me the carnage stuff is kind of irrelevant the stuff with i think shriek is the name of the i can't remember the name of the actress but shriek is the other supporting villain that doesn't do much for me i really just like watching tom hardy flirt with his symbiote and come out more in this movie. I think it's I think it's kind of nice. I do like that they've backdoored a, a gay love story into a huge budget superhero movie. I think that's mm-hmm. I think it's like wonderful trollish filmmaking by Hardy himself who's bisexual and I think it's good that he's, you know, getting these sort of stories out into the forefront. Um so I think that's I I think it's, there's a lot of fun here, but I don't think it's a particularly good movie. So my number 7 is The Amazing Spider-Man. Um okay. I I've just never had an attachment to either of like literally any of the characters in this. Maybe a little bit of like not my Spider-Man hashtag going on there too. Um, It just has never worked for me. So both of those together make up my seven and eight and then Venom, let there be carnage. Is it my number six? Oz? Is it your number six? I think it is. Maybe. I'll bet it is. Uh, I had to, I had to, I couldn't credibly put it higher. Listen, one of the most fun experiences I had at a movie theater this year was seeing Venom Let There Be Carnage. I admit with Oz, it is not a good movie. I don't think it needs to be. I don't think it's trying to be either. I think this is where the first Venom tried to be serious in a way that just brings the movie down. And the comedic aspect of the Venom and Eddie relationship in Venom 2 is so good. I've mentioned it on the pod before. When Woody Harrelson has that confession at the end of the movie and is like heartfelt and is like, I just wanted to be your friend. That's all I wanted was friendship. And then Eddie with, you know, as Eddie says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, man. And then Venom shows up and goes, fuck this guy and bites Woody Harrelson's head off is one of the hardest laughs I had in a theater the entire of 2021. So Venom Let There Be Carnage is my number six. Perhaps the best use of a f- of the word fuck in a PG-13 movie ever. Yes, absolutely. Um, so that's my number six is Venom Let There Be Carnage. All right, here's my number here's my number six. And this is where this is where we we go off the grid a little here. My number six is Spider-Man, the original oh no, Spider-Man. It missed. It missed. Oh wow. I I just the 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 kitsch stuff here has aged so poor. I like this movie. This is a good movie. This is a solid movie. I, 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 I look. We're talking about greatness here, so the score is going to be going to be rough today. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's because it's a, a lesser contender as we're talking about true greatness. And perhaps you know, we we thought through doing Spider Man. We talked about doing Spider Man Two or Spider Verse. You know, we thought about it and thought this is the forerunner and appropriate choice. But um, it's it's not the, it's not the strongest of the franchise. Okay, I. Uh, it's my number five, so it's not that far away. Um, but let's get to it. Your top five. Your top five are what? My number five is the Amazing Spider-Man. Okay, which I I understand that this is not a great movie. I understand that it's retreading a bunch of shit. I understand that it's 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 like embracing stuff that no one has ever cared about in the Spider-Man mythology. Nobody ever who's ever read a Spider-Man comic has been like, let me hear about Peter Parker's parents. That's just not a thing that anyone cares about. And there's some really embarrassing deserves to be roasted on, on social media stuff in here, like Spider-Man emo skateboard shit. That is just fucking terrible. But 
I find there's such a life in the scenes between Garfield and Stone. I think Garfield is such a strong actor that he single-handedly elevates some of this. I think the quippiness when he plays Spider-Man and is overjoyed to be Spider-Man gets at something that two and particularly three of the Raimi trilogy had pissed away. Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, hates being Spider-Man. It is like the worst thing that's ever happened to him. And the fact that Garfield brings back a fun to it and an excitement. I think the scene with the stupid cranes is kind of touching. I think it's a good... like. New York energy scene that I know instinctively in my like cold dead cinephile heart, I should be like, this is dumb bullshit. But it, it actually kind of touches me. I, I think it works. I think even fucking Dennis Leary is good in this movie. I, I think this is I think this is pretty effective as a Spider-Man story goes. I just I, I kind of wish we just dove into it and skipped over, you know, repeating the origin story and and the, the way it's presented here. But net net, I, I think it's I think it's solid. I really do. All right. I, I'm glad you did, Oz. I'm very, very glad you did. You're number four then. Spider-Man Far From Home is my number four. I think it's Same. the weaker of the MCU entries. It's it's good. Um, it's good. I don't know. The end, I, I think this, the ending is like the, the best, most iconic part of the movie. A lot of it, the sort of redux of like your National Lampoon's European vacation is... is um, hit or miss for me at times, but I like watching Holland and Zendaya together. I like Jacob Batalon, who gets a lot more to do here. I think I think Jake Gyllenhaal is a good uh, a good villain. Okay. I was waiting for you to give me like in the same way that you tore Christian Bale to shreds, even though I admire his work. I was waiting for you to give me some Jake Gyllenhaal takes that I wasn't I like gonna Jake. appreciate. Okay, good. I like Jake Jake Gyllenhaal is like arguably my favorite actor. Like I I, I think he's underrated and underappreciated by this industry. I could do with less Nightcrawler, Jake, and more Brokeback oh, Jake. But, I think he's great, uh, Nightcrawler. But like, there's there's range like, there. I like Nightcrawler Jake more than I like, you know, Fighter Christian Bale or whatever big Bale performance you want. Mm-hmm. But like, you have the range, the options of like, of Nightcrawler. You have um, stronger, where he has no legs. That he, movie he, is so good. Yeah, um, you have uh, some of his smaller stuff, like all his Denis Villeneuve. With enemy and uh, prisoners, you can go to. Um, yeah, I think Jake. The fact that he didn't get nominated for his 2010s in any performance is kind of insane. And I think he's doing some stuff in Far From Home that makes me like. For the first half, he's like, okay, this is kind of boring. This is what you got Jake Gyllenhaal to do. And then the second half is like, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal's here. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm in. I'm game. Uh, the reveal scene is really good and really funny. That like bar speech. I think it's, I think it's really good stuff. Um, yeah, Jake is. Jake is really good, but he he had the problem of you know coming up kind of like Toby did as like a child actor. He was in that rocketry movie that I can't October Sky. October Sky. I watched that in Earth Science class in high school. Yeah, I saw that, I saw that in theaters. Um, uh-huh. But uh, <laughs> uh, he he's in a lot of movies like that that kind of tarred him as a certain type of actor. And then he he made a real play for the mainstream in a bunch of movies that didn't really work, like Prince of Persia, that you know put him at a deficit with critics and awards voters and he's he's been undoing the damage and now strangely he's leaning back in and doing like a fucking michael bay movie next and all sorts of crazy stuff but whatever i I like jake and i think it's cool that he does whatever the fuck he wants okay so then our top three are the same three yep uh and i feel really strongly about the order and i suspect you agree with me my number three is homecoming Uh uh-huh do you agree Yes. And my number two is Spider-Man 2, and my number one is Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse, yes. Yeah, Spider-Verse ranked in my animated films. Spider- Spider-Verse is uh, it's fucking great. Yeah, we have the same same order then. Spider-Verse, 
I actually prefer we wait until this sequel comes out and then we'll do a full final review of Spider-Verse because that, look, you're about to hear our final review score for the original Spider-Man in 2002 and they're not going to be great. And <laughs> it's part of it is because like 16 years later, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse came out and literally changed the way that I view the Spider-Man character and made fun of the Spider-Man origin story and how it gets told over and over again a certain way. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather wax poetic. It deserves its own episode, is what I'll say. Um, you haven't said much about Spider-Man 2 here, so I'll let I'll give you the floor a bit. Why Why is it number two on this list? Uh, I think it is. It, it takes all the components of one and makes them better. There's more practical effects. I think the arms are great. I think Alfred Molina is, is really good here, and it gets at a sort of essential Spider-Man thing, which is that all of his villains tend to be humanized in some way, much as as Peter Parker is a more complex, less easy uh, character, at least in his in his struggles, if not his personality, his villains tend to be similar and have a little bit a, a little bit more going on than just I want to rule the world or I want to kill all the humans or whatever it may be. And I think the Octavius character, who you know, in effect, misses his dead wife, is uh, a good foil here. I think that generally the the tension of him trying to make it as Spider Man and have a job and go to school is uh, it captures nicely what is so important and works so well about this character and it's just fucking fun it flies by this thing is i don't know it's like two hours and 20 minutes and it feels like it's 80 it's it's really good it's good popcorn filmmaking and it leans a little away from too much of the kitsch that's in spider-man one there's a little less slapstick um and a lot more you know and the action oh the action is like massively improved the train scene's incredible dodging the car in the cafe is super cool uh even the like very cgi heavy aunt may on the side of the building fight is well done this this the whole thing is just it's it's top tier superhero bullshit you peter parker would save me and so you have thank god for you give me your hand believe in me as i believed in you I've been like a father to you. Be a son to me now. I have a father. His name was Ben Parker. Godspeed, Spider-Man. Oh. Scores! Okay, Oz, <laughs> go through your final review of Spider-Man. Uh, two points for Sam Raimi, zero points for McGuire, zero points for Dunst, zero points for Defoe, zero points for Franco, one point for Danny Elfman's score, zero points for Superhero, zero points for 2002, zero points for 2000s, and zero <laughs> oh, no. points for Spider-Man movies, leading <laughs> to a total score. Um, and I honestly thought about going in and adding Spider-Man in a few places to like make it not be this is a is a three, mm -hmm. which is by far my lowest score. But I will also say that I think that Spider-Man is by a comfortable margin the worst movie that we've done an episode on yet, including yeah. The Dark Knight. Um, so the the I, I'm not happy to kind of crush Spider-Man this way, but the process is working. Spider-Man should come out as worst of the movies we've talked about thus far, and it and it did. So, uh, good job, us, coming up with this format. You crushed it like a bug, like a spider, <laughs> might, one might say. I um, did, yes. So, mine, um, 
for Sam Raimi, it's my number three. For Tobey Maguire, it's my number two. For Willem Dafoe, it's my number five. For James Franco, it did not rank. For Kirsten Dunst, it's my number five. For Danny Elfman, it's now my number two. It is, did not rank for superhero films on the repeat. It's my number two. For uh, top five films of 2002, it's not ranked in the top five films of the 2000s. And then it's my number five for the Spider-Man cinematic universe giving me a total score of 17 which gotta be honest might actually seem a little high especially compared to where you had it but it's definitely my lowest score which also makes a ton of sense um look i i I hope this movie i like it's an eight out of ten i hope we celebrated enough with a three out of fifty yes with three (laughs) out of fifty but like that's the thing is like like there was no choice but to get better at making Spider-Man movies. And I think Marvel in particular, I mean, it's almost it's almost ridiculous to say, like, what has Marvel done well? Like, obviously it's the the, the proof is there. Um, but yeah, like I, I'm able to celebrate and appreciate what that 2002 experience was. And then, as we predicted at the very beginning, rate it as low as we are because of what has come since it. So that at least is how I'm reconciling it being, I think, my lowest score on this show so far. Yeah, it's my lowest score by a lot. You think? <laughs> Do you think anything that we've scheduled will be lower? Joker no, is coming I- in in a couple months. Man. If you can't admit that that score is great. I, I, now I'm trying to think how I have to how, I, how we have to pick the categories so that Joker will not score more than Spider Man. There's I no chance because you can't that jo- the score is so good it's easily she her number. Have credits. She has like three credits. Then it gets a number one. No, she needs five points right there. She needs to have like ten scores or then something. I will to, to call be. an audible and allow for it to be. You can include her television work then. Uh, yeah, I can't. I well, good. Then then it's gonna get smoked if I can no, include television. No, because then it's number one still. Anyway. Man, uh, all right, but uh, yeah, man, <laughs> poor Spidey. I look, I take a step back. I love Spider Man. I love this character. It means a lot to me. Like just, just like thinking about this character makes me feel emotions. I get emotional at stupid shit in these movies, like all the construction workers putting their magical skyscraper cranes in the right way. That that touches me. Gwen Stacy dying touches me. Like this, 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 this franchise and this character is is very important to me. So I. I I do love this movie and these movies, so I, I'm I'm sad that the score turned out as it did. I fair and hopefully, I mean this is. The, I mean we'll do a final a bonus review of this, but where do you? How excited are you for this weekend? And where do you see Far From Home ending up? Uh, I am out of my mind excited for this movie. Uh, though I've already had much of it spoiled for me, I will, no! will not. I will not be no! seeing any, any reviews or anything like that. I'm I'm turning off. Twitter. I'm putting all my blockers on. I will not be. Uh, I will not be engaging on anything because we, we're recording this on Monday and it screens today. So we need to go uh, media blackout for. But it screens today. Thursday. Like they're only showing f- like 60 minutes of it, no, right? Or 40. Full, the, oh, they're the showing f- the full movie. The full thing plays oh, today. I'm, I'm uh, then I'm. You'll hear. You'll know this by Thursday. But then I'm not. I'm going nowhere near the internet for the next four days. You're gonna avoid the internet. And considering Variety posted the stingers to Variety, like the industry trade posted spoilers for Eternals the night of the premiere, it's gonna be unavoidable. 
So, uh, yeah, don't go on the internet. Where I guess this will already be out then. But yes, does hopefully you have not been on the internet this week. We'll be back over the weekend with I guess early next week with a review of a bonus review of Spider-Man uh, Far From Home. Oz, do you have anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, obviously everyone's going to go see Spider-Man this weekend. If you're listening this far into this podcast, you're certainly going to see Spider-Man this weekend or soon. But uh, in addition to seeing Spider-Man, please see a movie that is not uh, a superhero movie or a $100 million action movie because they're no one's going to see them and they're all dying. And that means studios are not going to greenlight movies that aren't fucking... $100 million, $200 million superhero movies. There are lots of them. Go see Licorice Pizza. Go see Benedetta. Go see Silent Night. Go see West Side Story, which is wonderful. There, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can go see that isn't a superhero movie. And it's actually important if you'd like these sort of movies to exist in the future or else our future is going to be fucking Snyder Cuts and Red Notice. And then I'm just going to off myself. So please go see something. <laughs> Please go see something of artistic credibility. Come on, come on. Go see that. I need to still see Go. Come on, come on. It's only playing in like six theaters. None of them are near me. So. Or Red Rocket. I've heard it's wonderful. I haven't seen I've it I've heard Red Rocket that. is good too. Um, thank you, Oz, as always. If you dig the show, please head over to iTunes and drop a five-star rating and a review. We'll be back next week, but until not- next time, thank you for listening and tune in for another File Review. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.